Okay, I think we're live on YouTube and Facebook and LinkedIn, hopefully. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everyone. So this is Retired Japan TV, uh, and we talk about personal finance and investing and retirement and living in Japan. And today we're going to be talking about a very important aspect of living in Japan, and that is education. So I'm super excited to welcome Shaney to the show. Uh, I've known Shaney for ages, actually, for, for years now. Uh, and it's going to be really good to get some of her expertise on this topic. Uh, and I think we're going to have lots of questions from the audience as well. So welcome, Shaney. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Ben. Lovely to be here. Uh, we're actually coming at you from three continents today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Three different countries. I'm in Germany, uh, mm -hmm. and it's a very pleasant 1 p.m. here in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, and Daniel's holding down the fort in Japan. And mm -hmm. Shaney, you're in Canada. That's right. It's 7 a.m. for me here. <laughs> Thank you for your, your sacrifice today. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah. So, obviously, could you tell us a little bit about your background i guess sure. uh, and then people will understand why we've been excited to invite you on right so um i am from canada originally i'm back here in canada just due to a, a family emergency rather unfortunately but uh, but things are looking uh looking good in that department um so i'm happy to be here today um uh i originally came to japan in 1995 uh, as a jet um assistant language teacher in the um in fukushima prefecture in a very very small town um and uh, i stayed there i did that for a couple of years and then i became a an independent um counselor for international relations at a local um international association in fukushima and i did that for three years uh and then uh i decided to go back to canada for um because I, I after so i'd been in japan for five years and i thought you know I, I need to i need to go and be a proper person and and get a proper job and that kind of thing and i lasted a year and a half <laughs> and uh and then i came back to japan uh in the year 2020 uh, 2002 and uh since then i've been in scuba in ibaraki prefecture and uh in 2000 city in science scuba science city that's right and since 2008, um, I've been working at Scuba International School. And since 2011, I've been the head of that school. Wow. So that's actually a really interesting kind of career path. Yeah, kind it? of all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I came to Japan on jet as well. Oh, did you? Um, yeah, in 2000. And Daniel so, as well. Wow. In yes. 2000. And, and I was in Sendai. So right. not too far from Fukushima. Yeah, yeah. Right. Daniel, where were you? Down in Fukuoka, where I've just been this weekend, actually. Oh, um, lovely. So, yeah, built yeah. ties down there. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Yeah, Jed is amazing. It's, it's brought such um, a wide variety of people to Japan. It's, it's, uh, it's been a good gamble, I think, for the Japanese government. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And especially in terms of, like, people going back as well and becoming yeah. you know friends of japan it's a bit sinister yeah. in that way isn't it it is it is yeah <laughs> but <laughs> but it's it's easy it's an easy sell right <laughs> absolutely yeah. yeah okay so <clears throat> you're working at scuba international school 
Um, could you give us a definition of what an international school is? Because in Japan, there are all sorts of institutions that call themselves international、mm-hmm. schools,、yeah. and some seem to be more school like than others,、yeah. <laughs> more international <laughs> than others. So,、yeah. what would your definition of an international school be? So, I,、um, I should first of all say that I'm on the、um, executive committee for the Japan Council of International Schools. And while I'm talking here today, I just want to make it clear that I'm just talking from my own perspective. I'm not representing like my school or the Japan Council of International Schools. I'm just giving my own personal opinions. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the definition is tricky. It's, and that's something that,、um, that, you know, it really just depends on, on who you're talking to and, and、um, you know, what their goals are.、Um, so, the sort of standard definition used to be, anyway, Um, a school that、um, you know, has mainly foreign staff and that teaches in English. It used to be, you know, before,、um, before like even up to quite recently, saying like it, it has to be English, but、uh, you know, that's, not, that's not necessarily true anymore.、Um, and that、um, I think that another way that it was defined before was to say、um, you know, that it provides an education that primarily. Um, results in students going abroad for their education.、Um, but none of those things are necessarily true anymore. And there are, as you say, many, many schools that are kind of more, more business like than school like. And there's questions about okay, is that, you know, it, is that in the same category as you know, some of these schools that have been in operation since, you know, for 100 years?、Um, And, and are, look more traditionally like you know, a, a school that you would see in a sort of more、um, Western country or, or something like that. So it's very controversial. The, this, this definition is very controversial. And, and、um, the idea of、uh, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice、um, brings up lots of different topics about colonialism and things like that. And, and, You know, how, how tight should this definition be? And is it being kept tight to,、um, you know, to, to spread a sort of dominant white culture through the world? <laughs> and is that what we want it to be?、Um, and so, yeah, this question of the definition is, is really quite tricky. And、uh, I don't personally have, a, I don't personally like to have a, 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 a tight definition, exclusive de- definition. I'd like it to be more inclusive. But that said, it does. Make it tricky when,、um, when for example,、uh, a school that is only a preschool calls themselves an international school. That, that's the one that I'm kind of like,、mm, you're an international kindergarten, okay? Very <laughs> common, yeah.、So、very I mean, common, yeah. Probably half a dozen international schools in Sendai, but yeah, I'm not sure what the quality is like across the board. And that that's kind the of thing. thing. Yeah, that's the thing. So that's, that's what makes it tricky. And that's what makes it tricky for. Um, I'm sure for the Japanese government as well to decide sort of how to treat international schools when, when some of them are really just preschools、um, and some are offering you know, kindergarten to grade 12 or some you know, subsection of that.、Um, and then now、um, there's a lot of Japanese schools that are offering the international baccalaureate.、Um, but they're so, does that make them an international school in、oh. some you know, version of the definition? Maybe. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's m- very murky waters. <laughs> it's a question、right. that is very hard to answer, actually, but that, that's my answer that it's, it's messy. 
Okay. And then, so for a parent who might mm-hmm. be thinking about schooling, um, mm-hmm. how should they go about choosing a school or, or evaluating a school to, for right. their child? Well, my, um, my go-to answer for this is always to look at the Japan Council of International Schools website, because those are the, those are the schools that have been really um, the hallmark of quality for international schools, in my opinion. Um, again, this is my, just my opinion, but, uh, so, you know, you, uh, but, you know, uh, you need to be looking at the school's accreditation really to, to be able to decide whether, um, whether the school is acting sort of in good faith as a school, the accreditation, uh, committees for, um, organizations like, um, the Council of International Schools or, um, WASC, um, I think this is the Western Association of School Councils or something. I'm not sorry, we don't have Oscar accreditation, so I can't remember the exact um, uh, long form of that. Um, but you know, there are certain um, major accrediting agencies, and I think those are usually the best um, indication that the school is, for example, governed properly um, and keeps safety and. Uh, ethics in mind in its operations and so that would be you you the school would apply to one of these bodies and the body would check them and, yep, and yep. give them a certificate basically that says exactly exactly so my school for example is uh, um, unfortunately I'm not there at the moment but my school is actually going through its accreditation visit right now and what happens is um, um, members come from overseas um, to Japan to inspect your school and they speak to the students and the parents and the teachers and the board members um, and the head of school, of course, uh, and, you know, just everyone. Uh, So it's not just a paper, you know, process. It's a, it's a, of course, you have to submit a lot of paperwork, but then they actually come and they see if you're, for example, living according to your mission statement. Um, Are you living or your mission and are you, you know, here's what you say you're doing is that what you're actually doing? Here's what you've written on your website. Are you actually providing that level of service or that level of care or that level of education um, in your community? So okay. that's that's a real uh, a real hallmark of quality, I would say. It seems like we have a comment agreeing with you there, Rob. Um, yeah, if you're a parent, you can ask if there's an accreditation process, which is pretty much exactly what you're saying. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's. Um, it's important to understand that there are accreditation bodies and there are accreditation bodies. <laughs> so, uh, uh-huh. you know, you can, you know, there are ones that are sort of easier to get, shall we say, than, um, than. so I would say that the, the, I personally think that the gold standard is the Council of International Schools. Um, it's worldwide. It's really hard. <laughs> it, you can't, you can't make it up. Um, you know, you, you really have to be um, walking the walk and talking the talk um, to be able to get CIS accreditation. Um, so, and um, some schools will say that they've got accreditation from the Japanese government, but that's not a thing that you can get as an international school. I mean, unless you are an Article One school, um, you're not going to be accredited by the Japanese government. You can be a gakko hojin or um, a uh, a school corporation uh, is what they call in. in uh, in Japan, um, international schools can be what's called kakushugakko, or uh, in the category of um, various schools, <laughs> um, and so that it's a kind of you know recognition by the Japanese government that you're operating 
properly and they do have some checks and balances in there. Um, but it's I, I wouldn't go so far as just to call that an accreditation. That's a, it's more like you exist as a corporation than you, know, you have quality yeah. or whatever. Are yeah. these visits scheduled or they, do they just show up at some point? There's, no, no, they're very much scheduled. So, for example, okay. my school right now is going undergoing its preliminary <clears throat> visit. And so they, the, the Council of International Schools sends two people. They stay for about a week. Um, and there's a, all this paperwork that we filled in. There's deadlines, deadlines, deadlines. We fill in all this paperwork. They come for a week. They give us some feedback. Then we run our self-study. That goes on for another year. Um, then they, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's not it's not trivial. Um, then uh, they will come back in about a year. And because we're an IB school, an international baccalaureate school, um, we've decided to do a, a combined visit or a synchronized visit with the IB. So then the IB will also send people. And so there will be probably seven people or more <laughs> staying for a week um, and really just like digging into all kinds of different things about our school and, and asking us really good and deep questions to help us just get better and better at what we do. And so, yeah, wow. it's very, very scheduled. It's scheduled years in advance. Um, and how how often does this happen? This every, five, every five years. So, but, but so it's the, the visits are the, the accreditation visits are every five years. So the preliminary visit has to happen a few years before that. And this self-study happens a year before that, like that, that kind of thing. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of ongoing always. Okay. It's a rolling kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. In the comments, uh, Gareth said like Ofsted for international schools. I was that's thinking it. the same thing. I don't know if that's yeah. UK only or elsewhere, but yeah, Ofsted. Yeah, um, UK. That's UK only, but yes, that's it exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, we were talking actually before the stream about boarding schools and how some students might be suited to boarding schools and some might not. But how would you go about thinking about which students should attend an international school and which students might be better off in the Japanese school system? Mm, that's a really good question, and I think that that depends entirely on the family and their policy. I call it a, I, I recommend to families that apply to my school that they have a family policy and they really, really think about what is, what do you see or what do you want for the future of your child and the future of your family? Um, if you think that your child is most likely going to grow up in Japan and get a full-time job in Japan, for example, then it can make a lot of sense for them to go through the Japanese education system. And uh, like, as I said, I was a JET, so I've worked in the Japanese education system. And uh, I, I don't consider myself to be an advocate for the Japanese system or the international school system. What I'm an advocate for is people having a family policy and really thinking about what is right for me and my family, what is right for my child. Um, and it could even be different for this child versus this child. We have that in my school where some children in a family are in, in our school and, and other children in the same family are in Japanese school because it just makes more sense for that family and, and for that child. So I think that there's no, there's no good answer um, other than, you know, they're just factors to consider. So for example, can, you, can people in your family communicate in Japanese? can people in your family communicate in English? Um, that's gonna be a, a big deciding factor because if you can't communicate with your child's school, um, you're going to find it very difficult to 
really understand what's going on and be able to jump in when you know when when your child is struggling for example not not to help your child but to not to help your child directly necessarily i'm not saying that parents need to be there to do their homework for the child but just to be able to communicate with the school community community um, when there are any issues so i think it's it's just really important for families to have conversations about bilingualism for example um, or, or, or the language that they that they're going to be using in their lives and which language or languages do they consider to be their child's mother tongue um, and therefore um, what sort of educational opportunities make sense makes make the most sense um, for that child for that particular child in that particular family okay do you have a minimum kind of language ability for example so if, if a child yeah. came to you and was like okay well, we don't have english now but we want to join the school i mean yeah so unfortunately we can't um really accept students who aren't at the right grade level um in in terms of their english um because we're such a small school and we don't have like a fleet of esl um, teachers um we can't really support students who are much more than like a grade below or so um, in the in the older grades in my school we have age three to grade 12 so age three to about 18 year olds um, and you know if they're three years old then it doesn't matter <laughs> but if they're you know for example going into grade four um, and they can't read or write um, in English um, or they can't speak English for example then yeah that's that's not something that we can we can work with unfortunately Right. Yeah, I went to. Uh, I grew up in Spain, so mm -hmm. I went to a German school. And right. oh, gosh. we had a year of kind of induction before joining yeah. the school. So yeah. a year of language study, and then yeah. yeah, if we could do something like that, like possibly in the future, like my school is still kind of small, and um, you know, in its I call it. I say that we're in our pioneering stage, even though actually the school has existed for more than thirty years. Um, <laughs> it's only been in its current location for fifteen years. Um, and we've only just expanded up to have uh, grade 12 since 2019. Um, and so there's still lots of things that we're, that we're putting in place. Um, and so I'd like to do that in the future. I'd definitely like to be able to accept students like that. But for example, if, um, if my school was in Canada and um, the, the, you know, we had a child who, who didn't read or write English um, or even speak English and they were going into grade four, um, you know, they would be completely surrounded by native English speakers, mostly, um, and they would have English TV and they would have English culture all around them. And so there would be these supports in place, not just in school, but outside of school for the child to be developing the vocabulary and, you know, um, becoming self-motivated to speak and read and write English. Whereas in my school, um, almost everybody is a second language um, learner of English. Um, and so, for, you know, they're from all kinds of different countries. And uh, the, the, I would say the environment is not, not great to support second language learners. Um, it's too small. There's only one class per grade. And the outs outside our school is all Japanese. Inside our school, we have lots of kids who can speak Japanese. So especially a Japanese child who comes to our school um, and doesn't have the language skills for example, um, is going to be better served by a Japanese school <laughs> than our school. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate because, you know, grade four is not too old, is not 
too old to learn a language. Uh, you know, it's absolutely possible for them to learn uh, English at that stage, but whether or not my school is the best place for them to do that is, is a different question. Right. Yeah, where, where do your graduates go? Would be well, the, they go everywhere. So, um, yeah, we've got it on, we, we listed on our website um, all the schools that our students have gone to. So, like I said, we've just started graduating students from high school in 2019, um, but we have students going to all kinds of universities in Japan, first of all, because 2019, 2020, we're talking COVID, right? Um, and so the students, many students who are planning to go overseas for university didn't necessarily want to go overseas and then sit in online classes. Um, and so that caused a kind of explosion of students looking more towards staying in Japan. Um, and so many national and private universities in Japan, like Sophia and ICU and Waseda and, um, you know, uh, public universities like um, Tohoku and Scuba University, Kyoto, these kinds of um, universities, plus um, a number of universities in Canada, the United States, England, Australia, um, Holland as well has been a, has been a, a, a popular one at my school. So yeah, just anywhere and everywhere. And that's that's due to the IB. That's due to the International Baccalaureate um, being such a, a, a great um, program to get students into tertiary education. Is there an issue with, with students joining Japanese universities? So would they need to use a, like the foreign student track or something if they were going to do that? So they use the IB track in, in most cases, the International Baccalaureate um, admissions system admissions process. And the, 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 but the issue is in Japan that there isn't one sort of standard way to apply to university. You have to go, like you have to actually go to that particular university's website and look up their process. And in some cases you might even have to go to that department in that university um, to figure out what that department's admissions process is. Um, and so it's, there's no standardized system. Um, so, um, many universities now in Japan, because Japan has been trying to, has been pushing for public Japanese schools to offer the International Baccalaureate, um, many, because of that, many um, universities have started accepting the International Baccalaureate at face value, rather than saying that students have to have done that and then also do the Sentashiken. Um, the, the entrance exams for Japanese universities. So they're taking the IB um, score at face value and saying, okay, if you if you got this score, because it's it's a series of you know five or six exams that students are taking. So they don't they shouldn't necessarily plus an extended essay plus they've done you know service and 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 learning uh, service opportunities. Um, uh, you know it's a very rich and high quality internationally accepted. Um, you know, uh, high school certificate. Um, so rather than getting students to jump through more hoops, they're, they're just accepting it as is. But whether or not the university does that is up to the university. And as I say, sometimes up to the department of the university. So like a, a particular university's medical section might say, no, you still have to take the Santashkin. But that, that same university's um, geography department, for example, might say, yeah, for sure, we'll just take the IB. Okay, so it's, it's pretty complicated. <laughs> it's really complicated. Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, so jumping back to international schools, um, mm -hmm. what would you say the advantages and the 
disadvantages of an international school would be? Hmm, advantages and disadvantages. Um, Compared to a local Japanese public or private school? Yeah, this, it's really hard for me to answer that question because like I say, it's really it really depends on the family. So, um, you know, advantages are, you know, if you only speak English, if you don't speak Japanese, you're going to be able to speak to your, your child's teachers. Um, um, disadvantages can be that, you know, you're going to graduate not having been through the Japanese system. So you're, you're not going to have the same level of understanding of, of various things as, as, you know, in, in, you know, in relation to Japanese culture, for example, um, as somebody who's been through the Japanese system. Um, some, some international schools like mine, for example, um, do take Japanese learning very, very seriously as well. And, and we try to graduate students who can function in English and in Japanese as much as possible. Um, and so, uh, so it, it, depending on the school that you go to, depending on the international school that you choose, um, that can be more, uh, more of a sort of harder choice. Um, but yeah, I, and you know, it's, it's, it's a different style of education. Um, it tends to be a different style of education, but there are international schools that are very, um, are, that are very much about rote learning, um, similar to the Japanese system. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, you know, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, um, some of the, um, excuse me, <clears throat> some of the um, Indian international schools that use the Indian uh, curriculum um, are, are, are a lot more strict in that, not strict, I don't know if that's the right word, but a lot more, there's a lot more rote learning, um, perhaps in schools like that. So that like, this is the thing, the word, the, the term international school, just, you know, it's, it can be French schools, it can be German schools, it can be Korean schools, it can be, you know, there's, there's so many different Indian schools, of course. Um, so it's hard to say, it's hard to say like blanket statements, like, you know, in, international schools are good for this and Japanese schools are good for this. Um, I really, really think it's, it all depends on what the, what the family wants for their child. Okay. That makes sense. sense. Yeah. Actually my, my personal experience too, like I went to the German school and it was very rigid and, and, mm -hmm. you know, let's memorize everything. And, yep. uh, uh, and then I transferred to an American school, which was a better fit for me. So that's the, it's fit. That's, that. that's the whole thing, right? Like it's really what fits your child for some students, for example, some students who come to my school, my school has inquiry-based learning, for example, in the, in the very young grades, play-based learning, um, which sounds like paradise to a child who will, who wants to explore things on their own and wants to, wants to play and learn. Um, but some children just have the personality that they need structure and they need a lot more structure, for example, than my school might provide. They need quiet um and my the classrooms at my school are not necessarily quiet <laughs> there's a lot of discussion there's a lot of movement there's a lot of dynamism in play and some children would prefer for things to be quiet and for things to be structured and i know that i need to work on this now and i know that i need to do this work which will result in this grade which will get me into this school you know so it really it's fit it's exactly that's the perfect word for it it's it what what and like i say it can be this sibling in this family needs this and this sibling in this family needs that um and and i i hope that parents recognize that and don't just say 
my child is going to be in international school or my child is going to be in Japanese school, but really, really look at the needs of the child, um, not just the not just the need of the parent to have things go their way. <laughs> I think that applies to a lot of things with children, doesn't it? Like, it really does. It really does. <laughs> I could jump in from a parent's point of view. So our son went to a Japanese uh, school elementary up to um, grade six and then mm -hmm. Um, junior high and high school was at a, a, a uni, uh, international school here right. and he was kind of flexible he enjoyed both schools mm -hmm. well he won't admit it <laughs> right now but he did yeah. um we saw his face when he came home every day he was fine and yeah. um the benefit outside the sort of education side was um that he got to see that on the one hand you've got you know the desks in a line but then you've also got the oh desks can be in groups we can learn mm -hmm. in groups and you know you still get your education and yeah. on the other hand, it's writing in books and a paper. And the other one is um, on a computer listening to your earphones during a lesson. And that's also fine. So yeah. it was yeah. really just a broadening of uh, of uh, sort of his, not horizons, what's the word? Broadening his mind, I suppose. Yeah. Or just yeah. seeing that the sort of the, there's no one right way to do one to do anything I think. yeah i think that's really it's that's a really good uh, really good way to look at it and yeah I, I see that with uh some of our students as well who come in from different school systems not just japanese schools but you know public schools from other countries you know american students will come in for example and you know our school is not an american my school is not an american school um and it's it's culture shock for them as well as for a japanese student coming in from from elsewhere and so it is um, and, and, you know, sometimes as we all did, I think um, all of us coming as Jets, when we first came in, we're like, why does the Japanese school system do it like this? And why does Japan do it like this? And why can't they do it more like, like they do it? Why can't they more do it more the way I expect things to go? And, you know, just, yeah, that, that opening of minds is, is really um, important. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the different, just hearing the different languages at playtime or break time. Yeah. As, as a parent, we would, when we go to the school visits, just hearing these different languages was just wonderful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's a really it's nice environment. It's a, it's a great environment to work as well. Um, you know, oh, yeah. That side of things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Having worked at Japanese schools and, and, and in my oh, yeah. school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think the last kind of big topic on this is cost. So yeah. Yeah, since this is an international this is, school. Um, yeah. Yeah, one of the, the forum topics we're going to discuss later on is talking about trying to plan mm -hmm. uh, educational costs or child costs. So yep. what do we do you have a kind of rough kind of ballpark for the cost of, of fees for a, a school and maybe more than fees? You know, there's, there's yeah. often extra charges that people yeah. might not be aware of. Um, I know we were talking about Harrow, yeah. <laughs> Harrow International School, which might be the most expensive or one I of the most so. expensive. I would say yeah. so. Yeah, I think that. Um, so my school is one of the less expensive, completely accredited, um, you know, continuum um, IB schools. Um, uh, and we're at, I would say, I think that probably um, ours is. Uh, I, I might be making a mistake here, so please correct anyone. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong about my own school. But I would say about 1.8 million yen for my school for one year. Um, oh. Yeah. 
versus Harrow, which again, I could be wrong, but I believe that because it's full, full boarding and everybody is a boarding student, I believe that they're more like 8 million yen. So, you know, it's a huge, huge range. Um, I think that, um, you know, a super high quality school in Tokyo, for example, would be 2.5 to 3 million yen, roughly. Um, and so, yeah, so any, you know, roughly, roughly two to three million yen for you know, like a high quality accredited um, international school pretty much anywhere in Japan, but you can pay more and you can pay a little bit less as well. Right. Even even private high school here. I mean, I think we were paying about 50,000 yen a month. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's probably half a million to a million yen a year just for normal private high school. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's expensive. Education is expensive in Japan. <laughs> Well, it depends where you <laughs> coming close, from. Yeah. We were yeah. talking about the school I went to in the UK, uh -huh. uh, and it's up there with Harrow fees. Now, oh, right. You know, right. I looked it up, and I was like, oh, maybe my granddaughter. No, my granddaughter yep. could not go there. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's a little bit crazy. Like, I, you know, even, even me, you know, running the school, I sometimes marvel at the fact that people are willing to spend that much money for their child to go to, you know, a preschool like three-year-olds, four-year-olds, and five-year-olds um, paying, they're paying way more than I paid to go to university. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, it's a whole new world. It's, it's very different from the world that we grew up in. It's, I mean, even when I was in boarding school, we would have discussions, you know, mm -hmm. at night after lights out, like um, thinking about the fees mm -hmm. and whether we would prefer to have the education or just get the money as a lump sum. <laughs> You know, and like which right. which would be better? Yeah, yeah. Um, and looking back, I I don't know. I mean, obviously, I I had a great education uh, and it served me really well. But on the other hand, you know, getting fifty, sixty thousand pounds at the age of eighteen as well—that that would also have been very helpful. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. If you knew how to use it, if you if you had done your, you know, if you knew what you knew now, yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I'd have probably spent it on you know traveling and and a car and stuff like that yeah, yeah, not exactly. useful, so yeah I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure long term the education has served you better <laughs> yeah i think so and and just the even the experience and the memories and the, the friendships as well so yeah. i mean this this trip i was visiting friends from school so right nice um, awesome so i think we can kind of move on from <laughs> <laughs> sure. So you've been here longer than me. Okay. Daniel, how long have you been here? Uh, about 20 years this year. I okay, think it was. about the same, right. So Shani, you're, you're our senpai in terms of living <laughs> in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> so what? what's your kind of takeaway? I mean, a lot of our readers, for example, or, or viewers um, are going to be newer to Japan. So what, what is there anything that you've kind of learned as as lessons or advice for people and how to have a good life in japan for decades yeah like well like we were kind of touching on earlier i think when i first came to japan i was filled with all of my canadian thoughts um about how the world should work um and uh, i wanted uh, i wanted japan to be more more like canada um and for japanese people to be more like me um, and uh, through the years, I've definitely 
learned to be more uh, to, to my eyes have opened more to the 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 great things about Japan, not just good, but great things about Japan because they aren't Canada, <laughs> um, because they don't do things in a Canadian way. Um, and I, I think that um, after a few years in Japan, you develop a sort of, um, I, 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 I developed, I don't know whether everybody does, but I developed a more mature um, viewpoint or perspective on things. Things that used to drive me crazy and still do, um, I can now look at and say, yes, but it's like that because, um, and you know, whatever the explanation is. So for example, there's a topic that will be near and dear to retired Japan viewers' hearts is the banking system in this country. <laughs> <laughs> that like, you know, back when I came to Japan in 1995, we were already using debit cards, which are still not really a thing here <laughs> 25 mm -hmm. years later. Um, and so like that used to drive me crazy. Plus the fact that every time you go to the bank, like I, you know, my name is Shaney Crawford. I have a middle name that may or may not need to be in the mix when I'm applying for something. Um, I remember um, going to the postal bank and filling out a form so that I could take out, you know, a hundred dollars, not even, you know, not a huge amount of money. And uh, I say a hundred dollars. I mean, I mean, 10,000 yen. I always, I, I just translate automatically. I just cut off two zeros. I don't even care about the exchange. That's, that's another, maybe a long-term Japan thing. Like it doesn't matter. The exchange goes up, it goes down, whatever. Lop off two zeros. It's a hundred dollars. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, you know, I was trying to take some money out and I had to fill in the paperwork twice because first of all, like I, I, I cringe at having to fill out paperwork. I'm like, you have a computer right there you mm -hmm. can look up right now. And I have to fill out this stupid piece of paper. Um, but I had written my name as it's written here um, on the screen with, you know, capital S, small h, da, 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 da. And they would not accept it because it was supposed to have been written in all capitals. And I was like, oh. it's the same thing. <laughs> and like things like that are frustrating. They're so frustrating, especially as a newcomer to Japan. There's so many times when you're like, no, I'm not doing this. Like, I, I can't do that. I'd like, don't make me do this, but you're made to do it. But I realized that, you know, long term after, you know, staying in Japan for a longer time, things like that are what make Japan safe and polite and secure. And, you know, the fact that they literally have a paper trail, you know, if you want to take money out of your account, you need to fill out a, a piece of paper. They will keep that paper and be like, look, you came in and did this. And it means that nobody else can come in and do that unless they've got my hanko. Right. And so there's a there's a there's a cost and 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 there's a savings to to every thing. Um, and that's made me. um appreciate Japan a lot more um, after being here for a few years. Okay. I might say that it's more of a curve. Yeah. So I'd say people who just got here are more accepting. Yeah, yeah like, that's okay, true. Fine. That's you true. Know. After yeah. you've been here for a while, you start getting annoyed at certain things. Like yeah. Yeah. I went to the ward office um, a couple of years ago and filled in some paperwork. And they said, no, you can't write your date of birth in Shawa has to be right. in you know 19 whatever and that really yeah. annoyed me for you know for it's point it's 
it's fine. It doesn't matter. But it yeah. Is, ah. Yeah. I just hate having to fill forms out over and over again because you've made the mistake. And that, that like, you, sometimes you can just cross it out and honko it, but sometimes you literally have to rewrite the whole form. And I hate writing forms to begin with. And so, like, I just, that, that gets my Canadian rage going. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's not a mistake. It's just yeah. a formatting thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Like Shaney Crawford written in caps versus, you know, title case. Mm. Yeah. It's like websites, yeah. right, Daniel? Like they should be right. able to, you know, when you, you fill in websites and it's like that's the wrong font, oh. or whatever it is. Yes. They should be able to just do it automatically, right? Yeah, that the double like, yeah. versus, yeah. As yeah. says, in the background, it makes no difference. Um, yeah. But the way they programmed it or whatever, yeah. 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 As uh, so, a comment from Lex DeLeonis says, leave expectations at home. And yeah. going back to your curve, I kind of like, I've gone on the upside, I've gone on the downside, and now I'm like, yeah, whatever. And at a previous workplace, there was a guy here who would always say, TIJ, this is Japan. And yeah. that really helps me. When something weird happens, I just say, oh, TIJ. And it somehow calms me down. I, like, I like that. Yeah, that's it. That's it exactly. <laughs> like, this is Japan, and you're not Japanese. And even, mm. and, you know, even that thing, whatever it is, can frustrate Japanese people as well. Yeah, um, but yeah. yeah. I always uh, I, I like that this is Japan. I think I'm going to keep that. But I think and I think it's it's the that's it's the same sort of essence that like there are like good things happen because of the way that they do things here. And like I feel that uh, one of the key features of Japan is that people are chanto. They do things properly. Um, and Canadians, we don't do things properly. <laughs> we do things to get them done. Um, and yeah. and that's a difference. And that's a that's a big, huge cultural difference. Um, and uh, and it makes for very, you know, very different cultures um, that all that both have really good points. But yeah, yeah. This is Japan. I, basically, I think you can't pick and choose, right? So mm -hmm. you either take Japanese culture as a whole. Yeah. You can't be like, oh, I like these aspects of Japanese culture, right. but yeah. I don't like that aspect. <laughs> yeah. It's not yeah. a menu, right? <laughs> I mean, you can, but you're just going to build up resentments in your heart and not exactly. be able to live here happily. So, yeah, it's better just to be like, this is Japan. <laughs> yep. yep. I love yeah. you living here. So right. if, that's, if, yeah. if that's the cost of it, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how to how to successfully live in Japan for decades? Like, be <laughs> chill out. Be okay with things. things. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's always that, you know, the the culture shock thing where it goes in yeah. cycles. Yeah. So you 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 have culture shock over and over and over again, yeah. but it, yeah. the waves get smaller as you as you go. Yeah. 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 I had quite a bit of. I wouldn't say so. This the interesting thing is I um when I graduated from high school and before I went to university I did a gap year and I lived in England um oh, I lived in England. that must have been culture shock <laughs> it, it, well this is that this is the interesting thing so all of all of this so um 19 when I came went to England it was 1990 1991 and when I came to Japan it was 1995 so this is all pre-internet um mm. you know email I had an email address when I came to Japan but you couldn't really use the internet like i didn't know where i was going exactly in japan when i arrived <laughs> because the the town where i was didn't appear on any atlases um so when so i so i couldn't do a huge amount of research into japan before i came um and um other than what i could read in encyclopedias um mm. and uh, you know amazon didn't exist as well so whatever my local bookstore had about japan is about all that i could do um, and so, and also I didn't do any research 
into England before I, I moved there because I thought that it's going to be the same because I knew lots of British people and because there's lots of British people in Canada and I thought it would basically be the same as Canada, but like smaller. <laughs> and uh, when I went, I had enormous, enormous culture shock in England because it was so different from my expectations. I expected it to be kind of the same and it was really not. It was, you know, there's so many different things between Canada and England. Um, it's, you know, England is just so much older. The culture is very, very different. Um, and uh, and so I, I really struggled with that. Whereas with Japan, I was expecting it to be like mm -hmm. worlds apart. I was expecting it to be like so unfamiliar and so unexpected in every possible way that when I came, I was like, huh, these people are just people. <laughs> and I wasn't, oh. you know, I didn't have as much culture shock then. Um, so, yeah, but, but I did have... Um, I did have culture shock. The biggest thing that I experienced with culture shock was the different way to become friends with people in Canada versus Japan. In Canada, if I've met a person once, you know, and I see them again, oh, you know, do you want to go for a movie? You know, like we're very casual about friendships in Canada, I feel. We'll be, oh. we'll, we'll, we want to be friends with everybody. Um, that's what I've learned from being in Japan. People say that, like, you Canadians, you just want, you're so friendly. You just want to be friends with everybody. You're a little too promiscuous with your friendships, in, in fact. Um, British people say that about us, um, even. Um, whereas in Japan, it takes a long time to, you know, to get through the, the shell, as, as I like to think of it, um, of, of a Japanese person and, and to let them let you into your heart, into their hearts. And so that frustrated me. I was, you know, I'd been in Japan for like two weeks and I was like, I don't have any friends yet, you know, and then still after, you know, a couple of months, you know, I was trying to invite people to my home and people were like, <laughs> that's a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> Not that. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was the biggest culture shock for me, I think, was just um, how to make friends. Um, and I realized that after a few years, I have, a, I have a, an expression that goes through my head when I think about this, and that is strange and off-putting. We are, when we first come to Japan, strange and off-putting. <laughs> we do a lot of things that really set people, you know, off a little bit. Um, it was, you know, just like just trying to be friendly and trying to be like, you know, whatever, whatever it is. We're, we're being all gaijin at, at people. And um, Yeah, even having guests come. And you're yeah. going around with them. You're like, oh no, we don't make. You don't do that here. Don't do that. You're being like strange enough. Right. It just freaks them out. So. <laughs> yeah, and so mm. we have to kind of rein ourselves in a little bit. And once we do that, once we realize that we're being strange enough, putting we can rein it in, and therefore we can start to make friends. Um, I think that's maybe um, that's a bit of advice that can help people as well. I made a, a, a faux pas along those lines. I, I was invited to the wedding um, of a work colleague and to give a speech because you know I was the. I suppose the novelty of having a foreigner there and yeah. it must have been a year or two that we've been colleagues in the same department and got on pretty well and he was young relatively the same age and so you know wedding speech you know it's where you rib the make make a bit of fun of them you know, yeah, <laughs> so I, yeah. you know I talked about one time when he was drunk and blah 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 oh and it didn't go down well at all oh, <laughs> no. anything, but nobody was laughing and everyone was like okay let's just carry on for the next speech now <laughs> i could feel the the tension, the, the atmosphere is like, okay, yeah. I, I, I misjudged this. Yeah. Strange and off-putting. That's what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Actually, I, I often think that the UK is more similar to Japan than, say, America. 
mm-hmm. oh, even though there's a common language the culture is very different so yeah i find like i think uh, in, like i say there's many differences between canada and japan but there's actually a lot of similarities as well the the sort of the sort of um gentleness politeness politeness yeah i think i think yeah like I, and i guess that's that's the key as well to to being happy living in japan for a long time is to find the similarities not the differences mm-hmm. yeah another yeah. thing is if if like often as as foreign residents we're we're, we're allowed to opt out a bit of society yes. if we want if we want to right we yes. have the same kind of obligations mm-hmm. yeah. so especially you know if you're if you're not working for a very japanese um, employer mm-hmm. and you can yeah. often be like okay so you know i don't have these obligations and, and entanglements that yeah. japanese people growing up here would have so. yeah yeah and i think that um i i hear some people say things like well you'll never fit in you'll, you'll never be accepted as japanese and 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 that can that kind of thinking can cause a barrier um, to people who are trying, who are who are thinking about whether they want to stay here long term or not, but I think in my case, I never thought that. I mean, look at me; I'm not going to fit in as Japanese, um, and I never thought that I had to, um, and I don't want to. You know, I I am myself. I'm Canadian. I bring my own Canadianness and my own self to Japan, and you know, I try to. I try to not be strange and off-putting. I try to fit in as much as possible, but I don't ever expect to be, you know, a hundred percent accepted as a Japanese person. I'm, I'm just, I'm. That's not, that's not me, and I'm fine with that. But I know that that does bother a lot of people, and they they can't accept it. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's it's not a very realistic expectation. Yeah, like if I, I moved to Manchester in the UK. No one's gonna accept me as a Mancunian all of a sudden. Right? Yeah, you know, you'd yeah. have to earn it over over yeah. generations. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Even exactly. in your own country, right? Like, for I sure. Think, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that that's definitely a, a, a healthier way to to look at that and be like, okay, so yeah. I'll, you know, that of course that's not going to happen, you know, but I can still be happy and and comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, I own a home in Japan and I, and I live in a little village where we have like the Kairanban and everything like that. And, you know, there's, there's all these like expectations and obligations. And so like, I try to do my part and I try to, you know, fit in and, and do the right thing. Um, but I don't therefore expect that people are going to there then treat me completely as a Japanese person. That's, that's, I, that's an unrealistic expectation, I think. Yeah. Mm. And the other side of, of living in Japan and being happy is um, not being in financial difficulties. So. Yeah. <laughs> What's your take on personal finance then? So how, how are you approaching things? So I, when I first came to Japan, had no idea how to manage my money. Um, and it wasn't until, so I literally, I was so happy to be making 3.6 million yen. I was like, wow, <laughs> like, what I'm can I do? With, what am I going to do with all this money? Um, and, uh, and I spent it, I just, I, I, I earned it, and I spent it, and I earned it, and I spent it. Um, and then it wasn't until I went back to Canada, like, just at the end of my time in, in Japan, especially because I wasn't even when I was a private CIR, I wasn't even making 3.6 million, I was making more like 2.4 million or something like that, like some, like, no, even less than that, because it wasn't even, it wasn't even 200,000 per month. So yeah, 
as I wasn't making very much at all. Um, but um, when I moved back to Canada uh, is when I started thinking about personal finance and started learning about it. Um, I was able to buy some, because I was in Canada, I was in Toronto, I was able to buy some books and do some research and start learning, you know, from books like um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and, and things like that way back then and learning, you know, from my friends and from other people about like, what is a mutual fund? What is compound interest? Um, this kind of thing. Um, and so I was, so I literally wasn't, I was 30 by the time I started to think about it and started to think about trying to get some investments. Um, but I wasn't making a lot of money. And I was, I was living in Toronto and it was very expensive to live in Toronto. Um, but I did, I did manage to put aside a little bit of money then. Uh, then I decided to come back to Japan and I was a student. Um, again, I, I did a master's degree in the University of Scuba. And uh, it was very hard to make ends meet as again. So I kind of had the knowledge, but I couldn't apply it. Um, and then coming out of um, coming out of that experience, um, when I when I got a job again, I started to try to save money. Um, and at that time, my only way to understand how to do that was to go through um, one of the companies that was offering like expat finance, I don't know what to call it, <laughs> advice, um, financial advice. Oh, um, and so I still actually do have some savings in uh, in that system. Uh, and um, but I, I've recognized more recently, obviously, that like I'm my personal philosophy or my my the way that I invest or the way that I think about personal finance is I want to figure out a system, put money that goes automatically into that system and forget about it. I, I don't want to fiddle with it. I don't want to. I don't want to be reading up on companies and their, their you know profit lines and shareholders and blah, 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 blah. like I just I don't have time for that, <laughs> and I don't care about it. Um, and so um, I want somebody to advise me on how to get things set up. Remember Ben, uh, a couple of weeks ago you talked about what was it? It was about I, I think it was about personal fitness. About the the reason that ret retired Japan can exist as a as a as a company or as a not as a company but as an as a as an entity is that some people don't want to do it like some people would rather pay somebody to do that thing than to do it themselves and that's how i feel about my personal finance i'd rather pay somebody to tell me okay it's time to switch funds here or, or whatever it's time to set up edico or nisa or whatever and just fine i will pay you tell me what to do i will do it and then i don't want to think about it anymore that's that's mm -hmm. my my personal philosophy about, about finance. Well, I mean that—that's probably the the got the highest rate of success, assuming that you're doing something somewhat sensible. You and know, assuming, assuming I've got good advisors, doing it for the long term. Yeah, assuming I've got good advisors, uh, then, mm, then yeah. I think, yeah, it's probably best. Yeah, I mean, if I think the the more dangerous thing to do would to be would be to like if for a person like me who is not actually interested in the topic of finance as a topic you know of regular daily you know conversations i'm not looking at markets and upswings and blah, 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 you know it would be more dangerous for me to try to like wrestle control of it and you know try to buy and sell or you know uh, on a regular basis and stuff like that so i, I yeah. think it makes more sense this yeah. way and and i so i thought that when you know when i started working with a personal finance advisor, um, she asked me, you know, are you a risky investor? You know, do you have a lot a high tolerance of risk or not or whatever? 
And I was like, no, no tolerance of risk. I don't want to, you know, I want to keep my money. I don't want to, you know, but then as it turned out, my actual style of investing is super risk friendly because I won't look, <laughs> I don't check. So I'm very risk tolerant. Blissfully unaware of what's going on. Blissfully unaware. So I just, I just put my money in every month. You know, it comes out automatically. I, and I may or may not look at the statements in a year <laughs> like i really don't care so i'm actually super super risk uh, friendly as it turns out and well there's that story about um fidelity in the u.s doing a, a kind of research on their customers and finding a subset of their customers that drastically outperformed everyone else mm -hmm. and they looked into oh. who these super investors were yeah. and it turned out that they were either dead or they'd lost their login they, awesome. they couldn't they couldn't touch their accounts basically yeah. and so those accounts were doing great and everyone else was was underperforming so interesting yeah i really think because doesn't doesn't warren buffett say something like that um about like just pick it and stick with it rather than kind of go crazy i don't i i remember reading that somewhere maybe it's maybe it's apocryphal but yeah i mean his yeah. his obviously he's he's an active investor but his will so when he's leaving stuff for his family, it, it mm -hmm. stipulates that everything goes into index funds. Like, <laughs> right, right. Like, don't mess around with it. You're not, you're not as smart as all that. Exactly. <laughs> that's my personal investment theory. You're not as smart as all that. <laughs> yeah, and, and thinking that you are is, is where you're going to run into trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, like, I recognize this is not my area of expertise. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm smart in some aspects, but there are certain areas of my life where I'm not. One is uh, this personal finance and the other is food. This is a, a kind of an, another interesting topic for, for me to talk about. I don't know if it's interesting for anybody else, but I realize that I make terrible decisions about food. Um, and uh, by getting help in that department, I've managed to lose 103 pounds over the past year and a half by realizing wow. that I'm not an expert in this and I shouldn't think that I am. Yeah, that is very impressive. So I've I've been all proud of myself because I lost, you know, like fifteen pounds or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's also good because it's hard. It's hard. Um, yeah, similar for me. So I I've I've come to realize that my relationship with food is is emotional and, yes. and habit based, and it's yep. it's based on stress and kind of self medication and yeah, not not nice and and quite difficult to kind of own up to because it yeah. you know you you it, it's it's like any kind of addiction where you're slightly ashamed of it and stuff yep. so yeah exactly. yeah definitely exactly yeah this idea uh, and much like personal finance getting to grips with it can make your life much better <laughs> it really can that's the thing like like ed, like i think i think of it as like admitting defeat like admitting that you are not the expert in this thing that's got you you know got you in its grip and asking for help like that's mm -hmm. that's hard for me i i always think you know i need to do it i need to figure this out i need to get better at this i need to i need to i need to but sometimes you don't need to you need to admit defeat and and ask for ask for help and and you know get good help don't you know don't make make sure that your advisors are good um but it's in that act of, of asking for help and admitting defeat that you can finally make some progress we were like that with our accountant, actually. Uh, I thought, no, I should be intelligent enough to do this myself. And eventually we got an accountant at the end of year tax. And, uh, oh, it was such a good decision. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you, you just have to be like, you know what? I am actually not smart enough. And that's okay. 
You know, mm. I, I'm smart in this department. I'm smart in that department. This is not my wheelhouse and that's okay. I don't have to have all the wheelhouses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So today, a bit later on in the, the program, we're going to be talking about side hustles in Japan. Right. And I've noticed through your LinkedIn posts that you are thinking about maybe branching out. So could you tell us a little yeah. bit about that? Sure, sure. Well, I've just been recently thinking about this idea of uh, becoming a coach um, and not a sports coach. I don't, you know, I don't have any uh, thoughts of, um, you know, coaching basketball or anything like that. But uh uh, and not exactly a life coach. I mean, the life coach has this um, sort of bad connotation to it sometimes. And especially there's a there's a documentary out recently, uh, a podcast about this um, coaching company that is just a massive scam that is just like mm -hmm. scamming people out of money. Uh, and so not that either, <laughs> but just uh, the idea of being uh, what I call a thinking partner. So when someone is stuck, uh, and you know they're, um, you know they're they're trying to figure something out. They're trying to figure out the next move in their life, or even just their next move in their day. Um, and they're they're kind of having having trouble deciding what is the next right move. Um, they can hire a coach, um, and it can be a long term thing, or it can be like a one off thing um, to ask them for help with it. And I just I love that idea, and I, I love the idea of helping people that way. Um, and uh, so I started to look into this and I actually hired a coach uh, to help me think about this. And I realized that, yes, this is something that I want to do. And so I've just since April started doing the training to become a coach. And this could turn into um, a, a hobby. It could turn into a side business. It could turn into a full time business. I don't know. And I'm trying not to have um, expectations attached to it at this point where I'm still in the exploring stage. I'm trying to extend the exploring stage as long as possible. I don't intend to, just in case any of my, uh, you know, students or parents or colleagues at my school are watching, I'm not intending to quit, <laughs> quit my job at Scuba International School. Um, but it's just something that I'm exploring right now. And uh, I, um, I have it in my mind that I'm going to explore it for two years. Uh, and not because my tendency, my personality is like, no, 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 everything has to be now. Uh, and so instead of that, I've given myself this two year span of time to to explore coaching, to try it out, to see if it's something that I like doing and that I want to do more of. Um, and if so, what does that mean? That kind of stuff. So that's where I am. on. Right. So it's, it's not necessarily for teachers. It's more kind of strategy kind of. Yeah, for life. anybody focus yeah wow. yeah and not just strategy but literally like i'm having difficulty engaging with this particular person and i don't know why and i don't know what my next move is like it can be that it can be like i'm i'm i or i need to have a difficult conversation and i need help with figuring out how to start that or how to do that um you know it can be about anything anything at all wow and and what's the training that you mentioned so you can get accredited as a coach um, it's an unregulated industry at the moment, so you don't have to get accredited. Um, but I, you know, just based on my experience as a leader of a school, I believe in accreditation. <laughs> and so um, I'm currently thinking of, of getting uh, accredited as a, as a coach. Um, there are as many different ways to, to learn about coaching or to study about coaching or to be accredited as a coach as there are people. Um, so 
the way that I went about it is was was to try to find like this is a kind of common thread through this conversation trying to find an advisor that I trust or somebody that I trust somebody who's thinking that I trust and to study under them and so I have chosen to study with a woman by the name of Claire Pedrick um, who's written a book called Simplifying Coaching and uh, I really just everything that she um, stands for really resonates with me this idea that coaching doesn't have to be so complicated you don't need to memorize um, all kinds of different little schemes and things like that but it's more about being present a hundred percent present with the other person and holding the space for them to do their own thinking it's not about me like imposing well well why don't you do this you should probably just do it this way it's not about that but it's about it's about being a vessel or providing a vessel for the other person to be able to sort of open up and, and put their own thoughts towards their own problem. Because the person themselves, the answer is inside them. It, like they know more about whatever situation it is than they will ever be able to express to, to me or to anybody else. So I'm just there to hold the vessel, hold their thoughts for them and, and kind of show them back to them and being like, you know what do you think <laughs> um and so claire and claire is an absolute master at it she is just a, a just a, a thing to behold um if you if you can witness her coaching it's just incredible the work that she does and i really respect that and uh, and so i decided to to learn under her Awesome. I'm going to check this book out because uh, I do coaching myself as well right. <laughs> without yeah. any training. So. <laughs> You're right, right. <laughs> yeah, I definitely recommend it. Yeah. Fantastic. Right. So um, I think we're kind of coming to the end of our interview. Is there anything that you'd like to add for the retired Japan kind of audience in terms of yeah, uh, um, a resource or a, a book or a, a thought or anything like that. Gosh, um, we've talked about so many things, <laughs> so I can't really can't really sum everything up in in in, in one uh, one paragraph or in your one sentence. Um, uh, I guess I could say people can find me on LinkedIn if they have any questions. Um, I I do get a lot of because I'm I'm on the, as I said, the executive committee of the Japan Council of International Schools. I'm also on the executive committee of the IB Association of Japan. So I get a lot of questions about international schools. My answer is always, the answer is inside you. <laughs> Maybe that's the theme of this, you know, get a good advisor and the answer is always inside you. So, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to connect with, uh, with people through LinkedIn. Um, All right. Can we can we share your your profile and stuff? Sure, sure. Awesome. Yeah. We'll put that in the description. Excellent. <laughs> as we always do. Yeah, excellent. And uh, we'll put yeah, a link, just put a link to your school in the comments as well. School oh, sure. International School. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, it's a small school, and we have a big waiting list. <laughs> um, oh, really? but, uh, yeah. Uh, which is always frustrating to people. It's frustrating to me as well. I'd, I'm, I'm a very sort of inclusive person and I want everybody to be able to join. But I also really think it's important to, um, I, I have a vision for this school um, that it should remain small. It should remain intentionally small um, with very high quality. Um, and so that unfortunately means that we can't accept everybody. We literally have, we have a limit of the number of students that we have per class and we, we respect that limit. Um, and 
uh, yeah, and so we can't, we, you know, we can't accept a new student unless somebody else leaves, and we don't necessarily want any of our students to leave either, because, you know, we, we have a great relationship with all of our families, so, um, but anyway, yes, I'm happy if people are interested in my school as well, of course. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Shane, especially uh, in, under the current circumstances. Uh, and it's so my on. pleasure. I think you haven't had breakfast yet. So. Yes, I'm super hungry, so I'm going to go off and, and get my breakfast. And I thank you, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on LinkedIn. For sure, for sure. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to your future episodes. Brilliant. Thank, All you, right. thank you very much, Shaney. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you for our commenters as well, uh, Mohammed and several others earlier on. Good comments there. From yeah, the, I think this Facebook. this like multiple streaming thing works really well, doesn't it? Like we can yes. see where the comments are coming from. You know, they're coming from LinkedIn. They're coming from Facebook. They're coming from YouTube. Brilliant. Yes, maybe we should explain. Some people, um, the system we've got now, we can, we're actually streaming this on for the first time. YouTube. Facebook and LinkedIn. And so if you're on YouTube, for example, you can see YouTube comments, but we're getting others from, from Facebook and LinkedIn as well. So we yeah, thank you very much for those. Yeah. If we get super, questions yeah, in there, we will read them out. StreamYard, by the way, if anyone's interested. I think it's StreamYard. fantastic. Really enjoy the the platform. We tried it out last time, didn't we? Mm -hmm. yep. I think for the first time. And and it was so good that I happily paid for the um the paid version which which gives us this ability to stream to several platforms at the same time <clears throat> all right so on to the news so we've actually got i think today's show might be our best one yet just in terms of content like what a great um interview we just had really yeah, wide-ranging um, fantastic guest to have, especially considering it's seven in the morning. <laughs> she was surprisingly uh, was very well <laughs> awake well. and uh, and and active there. Um, and then we're going to be talking about side hustles later on, which I think is very interesting to a lot of people, especially now with inflation going up and uh, wages not necessarily going up as much. So lots of people are thinking, you know, how can I make some extra money on the side? We're going to talk about that later on. But first, let's talk about the news. Yes, we have a few things as usual. Um, we start off with, oh, I think I'll put this in here. Um, something that I saw in the news, which uh, we don't have to talk about that long, but, um, oh, they do this. So we try to find things during the, the month before the podcast and sort of put them in a, a, a note. And I get these links from Japan today and then they seem to remove them after oh, a couple they of They archive weeks. them or they delete them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why? Well, Sneaky. anyway, it's gone now. But it was an article just explaining how Japan aims to draw 100 trillion yen foreign investment um, from foreigners coming to Japan and from digital nomads. And... Um, they're trying, but I can't see how just throwing money at the problem is going to make a, a big difference. And I think it was for, was it, there was some visa changes, but still very small visa changes that's not going to really make a big um, Yeah, I saw that. So they've got a new category for people that make over 20 million yen or something. I'm like, 
all right, who are these six people that make that much money? <laughs> right. right. Um, the big thing, though, I mean, in terms of foreign investment, um, you know, you see Warren Buffett talking up Japan, and I think that's made a big difference. So we've had a huge mm. influx yeah, of yeah. Um, yeah, foreign investors investing in Japanese companies and in real estate in Japan. Uh, and the weak yen, you know, even though it is terrible if you try to leave Japan, like I have, <laughs> so I'm sitting here in Europe not being able to afford anything. But, you know, if you're on the outside looking in, everything's on sale. Mm. So I saw, I saw an article today that said um, the performance to date of the Nikkei is like 20% this year. It's gone up. So this is wonderful. I check it nearly every day now. Oh. <laughs> I don't know how long it'll last, but yeah, yeah. Although, if you're coming over here to get us uh, and getting paid here, then of course, you know the uh, the cheap prices are balanced by the, the low salary, relatively low yeah. salary. Completely. But if you're a digital nomad and you yes. can get a visa, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's been hard so far to be self-employed here and and legally work. Right? We're going to talk about that later with the side hustle thing. But yes, there would to need to be a new visa category for these people, wouldn't there? Yes, there is um, the startup visa, I think, which is only for a year. And I, I thought they were discussing how to extend that. But um, yeah, you get a year basically to make your startup work. And then you can get like a so-called proper visa and stay longer if you've got above a certain amount. Or, or you can but get even a that, company. it's like, okay, if you're making a formal, but if you're just working as a freelancer online, Technically, at the moment, if you came to Japan on a tourist visa and you were working, you know, you had a YouTube channel or you were doing freelance work, uh, mm -hmm. you'd be working illegally in Japan. So you would need a visa to do that. Yes. Um, Hannah, um, what's her username now? Currently Hannah, I think it is. She's a, a YouTuber. I think she's trying to make do it full time. And she wrote a, a video, or she made a video where she's very upset because she had to leave Japan because visa expired. And she applied, you know, so I've got this income coming in, I'm focused on Japan, but it wasn't accepted. It doesn't really fit into the existing visa categories. So I guess if they want digital nomads to come here, they're going to have to make a digital nomad visa that makes it possible yeah. for that, yeah. which might be good. I mean, if you, yeah, uh, Japan is very cheap now. You know, it's comparable to the other kind of cheap countries like Thailand and, and so on. So, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And then we had the question last time that we promised to answer, uh, and you came through on this. So, oh. can I brew my own, you know, beer in Japan? Right. Yes. Question all of us have asked, I think. <laughs> and I don't have a link to a, a legal site, but I do have a link to, um, a sort of reliable source, which is the Tokyo Metropolitan Foundation uh, called Tsunagari. So it's a non-profit um, uh, organization in Tokyo for foreigners. And one of the articles is about brewing your own beer in Tokyo. And it starts off by saying, I'll read it out, abroad, the, uh, abroad outside Japan, the home brewing craft beer scene is enjoying a boom in recent years, while in Japan, laws concerning liquor taxation prohibit making alcohol in your own home. Sad face. However, this is the article saying this, I heard there are microbreweries where you can enjoy the home brewing experience popping up in Tokyo. And so the article is about one example where 
the brewery is kind of like having these hands-on workshop experiences. So you can brew beer legally within Japan, kind of as a one-off, a one-time hobby thing. But no, you cannot brew it at home without a license. In Japan. So you'd have to partner with a brewery. So they have the license, they'll do it, and you can be involved. It's kind of like having an allotment or something, maybe. Yes, I suppose. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, you can't brew beer at home. I guess for personal use, you're unlikely to get caught. But if you were selling it or sharing it, that would be quite risky, I think. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think you can even brew it for your own use at home. No, um, no. Yeah. Uh, put the link to Legally, that, that would be a there. very bad idea. Much like playing poker with the boys on Friday or whatever, <laughs> which is right. also illegal. So gambling in Japan for money, completely illegal. And, you know, worst case scenario, you would get arrested for playing poker with your friends. Uh, for money so if you do it for money exactly yeah cool um, and then you found uh, yeah this is all you <laughs> well done <laughs> so you found uh an interesting article uh from one of my favorite writers uh yes yes i um this came up completely separately actually but yeah morgan so you know or you follow him more than i do morgan Hoosel, is it uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Housel, I thought it was, but who knows? Yeah. You know, it's okay. probably Dutch or something. You know. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, oh, Kai said that was his question. Oh, yes, I remember you, Kai. Yes, thank you. Oh, somebody's mentioned Brimmer Brewing, Kawasaki. Oh, that sounds good. Wow. Um, right, and da, 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 da. I'm going to put in then. So going back to this, uh, this article, um, the um, Morgan guy. He posted a sort of summary of his like life learnings and thoughts and things related to all different uh, things. And of course, there are some finance related ones in there. So I thought they were pretty good. And I went through and just pulled out some of the finance ones that I liked. And I thought I would read them through kind of like a, let's go like sort of top five. Let's go from five to one. Um, yeah. And so I'm going to quote them here. So the first one he says is the best measure of wealth. Actually, the f these first two are kind of related. The best measure of wealth is what you have minus what you want. In brackets, by this measure, some billionaires are broke because they want yeah, yeah, more than Yeah, absolutely. So being um, comfortable in your own skin is what this is, basically. You know, are you happy with the present moment? Yes. Um, I saw <clears throat> quite a while ago now somebody saying one way to be uh, to be better off is obviously you can adjust your income, you can adjust your expenditure, or you can adjust your expectations, which I thought was, was quite good. And yep. relatedly, his, the next one I have on the list from him is the most valuable personal finance asset is not needing to impress anyone. Again, very true. And so this goes with something I read a long time ago on the Fool, the Motley Fool forums. Going, He used to, to work for the Motley Fool, by the way, Morgan House. You did? Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, so I used to follow them a lot. I, I would, you know, check the forums uh, all the time. And I remember one person who was saying that he had about a hundred thousand pounds and shares and stuff. And I'm like, wow, how do you get to that level? And one thing he said is that when he was younger, he always used to dream of having a Ferrari. And now he's got to the point where he can afford a Ferrari, and he doesn't want one. He'll like see one going down the street, and like, well, oh, that's really nice. I love that. Um, if I wanted to, I could buy that. And just knowing that was enough for him. He doesn't need to impress anyone, just the, the knowledge was enough for him. And that, to me, meant, oh, wow. When you get to that point, then, yeah, you 
you're not trying to impress anyone. So that's sort of, I suppose, a, a way of being rich. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I was I was in the UK and I saw a friend who's kind of the opposite of this, in my oh, opinion, really? where th this friend has got themselves to a position where they're they have a certain level of spending that they need to do and that's kind of locked them into a certain job and, and they're not really saving because of this kind of expectation. Right. Um, so yeah, like being able to, to live on very little is, is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, having Isn't that, that how people like Mr. Money Mustache and stuff managed to retire early? They were very, very frugal for a while. Yeah, well, I mean, he he had a high salary as well, which helped. Oh, really? oh, okay. <laughs> so he was in he was a computer programmer, I think, or a computer engineer. Oh, I see. Um, so he had a high salary, but after ten years of having a high salary and not really spending it, then yeah, you do have a considerable yeah, yeah. mistake. His hobby is doing up houses too, so I mean that that doesn't hurt. Oh, my grandpa, my grandfather had that same hobby, and uh, yeah, he did very well with that. Yeah. Um. Right, so I'm going to go back to our little top five list of his, his uh, saying or his um, thoughts. The next one is, quotes, the market is rational, but investors play different games, and those games look irrational to people playing a different game, which I read that as um, kind of when I'm looking at a particular stock going up to a crazy high valuation. I was like, why would people keep buying that? It's ridiculous. And uh, or is it Warren Buffett who says the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent or something like that? Um, but the re he's saying the reason why it is irrational is because whoever keeps on buying that stuff is playing a different game to you. They're not like thinking about the long haul. They're thinking about the quick trade or they're looking at different set of metrics or whatever. So in that yeah, respect... Yeah, they have a different portfolio allocation. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. It could know, they might have... Tax, you know, um, their portfolio works method. differently or yeah. different tax incentives. Like there's all yes, sorts of... Yeah stuff so in that respect maybe it's not irrational it's just they're playing you know they've got a different sort of idea in their mind so don't get stressed yeah, out about which, it basically that's just the way which leads to the point that it's really important for you to understand your goals and your game what game you're playing right oh. so if you're if you don't understand that it's quite easy to get sidetracked and start to go oh, maybe i should buy gold now you know because everyone's talking about gold or, you know, maybe it's time to buy Japanese companies because Warren Buffett's buying Japanese companies because you haven't got that center that keeps you good point. on the right path. Yeah, but they're probably playing a different game to you. Um, the next one, the num position number two that I have is every five to seven years, people forget that recessions occur every five to seven years. And this is basically saying that bubbles going to happen, busts are going to happen. <laughs> And each time they, I see comments say, oh, this time is different because of this and this and this. The same with the internet boom, the, two, the dot com boom in the 2000s. Oh, this time is different because we never had the internet before. And, I'm like, eh. and then cryptocurrency comes around and this time is different because it's the whole financial system. Maybe AI will be the same. AI boom. Yeah, yeah. AI investing now. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, he says five to seven years. And I did see. Uh, I can't remember, was it the Property Hub website? I think propertyhub.com or something. They're based in the UK, they've got this theory where the property, over in the UK at least, goes in 18-year cycles. And apparently there is some like reliable research going back over you know, generations showing this sort of tends to be this cycle. So okay, I suppose the message from this is basically take a, 
a longer term view, take a broader view. Oh yeah, and and make sure that you're not in a position where that's going to damage you. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, if you're buying stocks on margin uh, uh, and <laughs> yeah. a, a stock market crash will will destroy you, that's not a position you want to be in. So mm. yeah, yeah. Um, right then, and then um, my top one of his is um, my top thought from his list, in my opinion, is. Average performance sustained for an above-average period of time leads to extraordinary performance. And he says, this is true not just in investing, but careers, relationships, and parenting. And then he has another thought, which is basically, I think, a summary of that. The fastest way to get rich is to go slow. Yeah, makes, makes so much sense. <clears throat> yeah, I was looking at a, a bodybuilder the other day. They had a video, and they were like, yep, yeah. so you know, you see these guys, they get really into it, and they go 120% for two months, and then they give up. And then you see the other guys, and they do 20% for decades and you know who's got the results it's the 20 percent guys mm. for decades every time yeah. <laughs> so. like uh, investing yeah oh kind of like what we were saying with shaney just to get somewhere don't think about it and yeah give it time yeah and then consistency just doing it month in month out um and i found that I'm, I'm not particularly talented at investing i've made lots of mistakes um but we have been investing consistently for about 15 years and the results are there so yeah yeah you know we 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 it's not the you know if we if we'd done the right thing we'd have made more money but it doesn't matter because you've made enough money to meet your goals which is again you know what what game are you playing you know are you playing the can i get as much money as possible or are you playing the can i get enough money to fund the lifestyle i want mm -hmm. right right because we're not playing the get as much money as possible game. You know, it's a different game with different incentives and, and different strategy. Yes. You know, Which most kind of... individuals, that that's not what we're doing, right? Right. I'm, I'm saying this is kind of leading into the next thing. Uh, Ramit <laughs> Sethi's kind of oh, philosophy yeah. <laughs> is pretty similar to that. His question that he asked, of course, yes. <laughs> the question he asks everybody is, what is your rich life? And then work out how to get there. Yeah, I really like Ramit's stuff, actually. I've been following him for a really long time, since before, you know, before his book, even. All right. Uh, I'm going to get the link to put in the comments. But uh, yeah, the reason why this is in the news is because uh, just last month on Netflix, um, he... Uh, had a series come out. I think it's eight episodes, and it, it's called "How to Get Rich," which uh, it, it could have had a more a sort of less sort of uh, like spammy kind of salesy title. I think I think it's because his book is called "I Will Teach You to Be Rich," and it's just yeah carrying on that theme, so it's familiar, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's but also it kind of clickbaity. It's like people are like, okay, let's see what rubbish he's going to say about that. So. Right, right. But would you class it as rubbish, Ben, having watched it? No, I think I think it's really interesting because it's looking at real people and real situations. Um, he's actually got a podcast that's the same where he has a, a, a couple on every week or whatever and, and talks to them oh. about their... Uh, and it's always about much more than money. It's always about emotions and your kind of history and your, you know, all that. And that's 
where the problems come from, right? Because people aren't yes. even aware of where their kind of attitudes towards money come from. Yeah. So it's delving into that. Of course, the Netflix series is a bit over the top, I thought. They are larger than life characters in the series. Yeah. But that makes it sort of entertaining as well as educational, I think. Yeah. Exactly. And and sometimes it's uh, it's a lot like um ah uh, what's it called Get Smart with Money, I think is the 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 similar series with Mr. Money Mustache on it as one of the coaches. Oh. Yeah. Um and that's very similar. So you get these these people in America basically where you know salaries are higher, people have a much higher kind of spending baseline and and from the outside you look at these people and you think what are you doing <laughs> like, mm -hmm. uh, but it does make for good tv i guess yeah yeah and the yeah, principles are universal aren't they yes yes and it's not necessarily a one size fits all for everybody because we all have different goals and we all have start off in different places yeah what i found interesting is whether the people would listen to him or not and invariably they eventually would sort of come around to his sort of way of looking at things but some of them took a bit of persuading and some of them straight away was like yes please i need i'll, I'll do whatever you say i need help so yeah so entertaining potentially useful definitely worth checking out if you have netflix i think yes and then um, something slightly less happy Oh, yeah. What? Maybe we shouldn't have finished with this. <laughs> so we're finishing the news with uh, another recent news article. The government approves hike in household electricity rates. And so several, now not all, according to the, um, the news article, but several electricity companies, including TEPCO, went to the government and said, please let us uh, raise the price of electricity. Now, it's good, I suppose, that they can't just do it on their own. They do have to get government permission. And the other good thing is that the government did say no, not the, the like the amount of high, uh, price hikes that you want to do, but yes, you know if the price hikes are a little bit lower. But the bad news is it's still going to be between fourteen to forty-two percent increases, according to this article, for the companies that requested that from the government. And that is, I'll read it out here: Hokkaido Electric Power, Tohoku, ah. uh, Tepco, sorry, Ben, Hokuriku. Shugoku, Shikoku, and Okinawa. That's Maybe other companies are everyone, asking, but Kansai, like, isn't it? Like, Kansai's not on that list, right? Kansai's not on there, no. Kyushu's not on there. Uh, whether they're doing it, like you've got a separate timeline, they, they're going to ask next month. They've already uh, done it, maybe. Oh, there was another it, yeah. one back in December, wasn't there? So. Yes, I think so, yeah. yeah. The other thing is that when the companies put the prices up last time, the government introduced the subsidy at the same time, so it wasn't really as oh. noticeable for consumers. So I, I'm curious about what's going to happen to that subsidy. So if it continues or if it's going to go away and then we get the double whammy, so we got the previous hike that we didn't notice and then a new hike. So it's going to be uh, something to keep an eye on, I think. Especially if we have a super hot summer, which is what it's shaping up to be with El Nino starting up, and uh, we're supposed oh, to have really? more extreme climate and over the next three, four years, maybe. So, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. yeah, we might have a hot summer. So, you know, obviously, electricity <laughs> and air conditioning is is not optional if it's hot enough. It's it's actually, you know, important for <laughs> for not dying <laughs> in the summer. Yeah. Wow. 
Anyway, on that note, <laughs> that's our news. Sorry, but basically, yeah, be, be aware that you know you you might be paying a bit more in electricity, so make sure that you know that you've got that uh, flexibility in your budget going forward. We'll allow for that, yeah. Well, you, so you might need a side hustle to help you pay for this. So. Oh, really, Ben? <laughs> Do we know anybody who could talk about side side hustles? <laughs> Cool, but before that, you found you've managed to buy something again. <laughs> Did I? Uh, so you, oh, you, you oh, picked yes, up yes. your uh, is it a muk? It's a muk, isn't it? Like the uh, live a rich life on two million yen muk that I bought. Yes, last year. yes, yes. One of the the a magazine book magazines. Yes, although this was just um, what was it? Nine hundred and ninety yen, I think. So I was at. Um, with my relatives the other day, they don't have internet, so it's a very offline experience. So I go to the shop and buy a book to read. And they've got this. This is Kabunushi Yutai, which is all about the sort of the gifts that you get if you buy shares directly in particular Japanese companies. Not all Japanese companies, but some Japanese companies. Only available if you're a resident in Japan, I think, and quite peculiar to Japan. And some of the things are Kuo card, Kuo card, I'm never sure how to pronounce it, Kuo card or like 2,000 yen um, card that you can use in combinis. Some of them might be a um, catalog gift. So every year they'll send you a catalog and you choose if you want a box of apples or a stuffed toy or something like that. And some of them could just be discount vouchers, like 20% off their products or something like that. And I've I got, got a few uh, shares which give uh, the Utah Kabanushi Utah. I like it a lot. So I was interested to see, this only comes out once a year. This is from January. And so... If you're keeping track of the prices daily of these um, companies to buy and sell, this is the buy and sell daily. This is not for you. But if you're looking long term, then what? Five months later, yeah, it doesn't make any difference. So um, I enjoy looking through this as seeing, you know, oh, what's changed? What, you know, any good ones that I've overlooked here? Um, Benesse was quite interesting, actually. I might get some Benesse shares because um, they've got a not bad, um, I think it's a catalog gift. But oh, okay. You get cup price testing, or like you get to go to their Jukufa. <laughs> right, but apparently they've they've stopped marketing one of their sort of like subscription um, test things for kids. Um, the subscription numbers are going down partly because they just stopped marketing, and they're going into nursing homes. So it seems like they're really thinking oh, wow. about the future and like. <laughs> the old population is going to be bigger than the child population. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's sort of, I don't know, I, I like this because the Cabinet of Utah is just kind of the thing that triggers me to then look further into companies and, you know, help make this in. The side benefit is also my wife was looking at through this. She has no interest in, in, in investing, but she was looking at it and, oh, I can get a hotel voucher with this one. Oh, well, let's, you know, let's get something that we both can sort of have an interest in. Um, yes. So the 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 real value of of Kabunushi Yutai, these shareholder gifts, is that they're they're understandable. I think to the man in the street, mm -hmm. you know, it's very obvious. Yeah. You know, it's very very clear. So if you buy this, we'll send you this specific present. You know, once a year, uh, it's easy to understand. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay. So I like McDonald's vouchers, or I like rice. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. whereas you know dividends and things, it, it, it it's slightly more alien to a lot of people so what's this percentage and and you know what what uh, what's the, you yeah. know you got the the declaration date and then the payment date and it's just like what so yeah yeah i mean it's, yeah. it's definitely encouraged normal people to buy shares i think yeah 
I like the system. Yeah, as long as it's not your only measure of uh, evaluating shares. But... Yeah, yeah. I mean, so <clears throat> most people kind of advise looking at you know the combined dividend plus gift and and that kind of thing. Often they'll they'll do both, won't they? These companies. So you might get yeah, a three percent dividend, and then you get like a, a, a you know a gift on top of that. Yes, this magazine does that. Yeah, and there's this with a guy we've talked about him before, but Mister Kitty Tanny, his name is there. Can you see that yes. guy? <laughs> he has a special feature in here. Japan. <laughs> right. So um, the media love him because he, I think, he lives his life through these shareholder gifts because he has so many, many. Shares. That's the story, uh, isn't it? He doesn't spend any money. He just uses the gifts. I was trying to work out how he does that. <laughs> he must have a lot of shares in a lot of companies. How does he manage his portfolio? I have no idea. But he does have some good rules. Actually, maybe I'll just sort of read out his his rules. And uh, so he has three, basically. Um, the first rule is think about the fundamentals. So any share that he chooses, in addition to having a nice, um, you know, the gift, the Utah gift, it should, have, it should have good value. And by that, he means a low PBR, price to book ratio, he suggests under one and the low price to earnings ratio, PE ratio. And he suggests under 15. I'd agree with both of those. Um, his second rule is buy it when it's cheap. So there's this Utah gift you really want or the company you really like. Just wait until it's cheap. Don't rush out and buy it. Sort of keep an eye on the price. And if it never gets cheap enough, just don't buy it. There'll always be something else. And that's a good rule. And his final rule is, yeah, to think about combining it with the dividend. So the sort of gift and the dividend combined, that's your overall sort of return, excluding any capital gain return. And the reason why he likes the gifts is because he says they are less likely to change compared to dividends. So the company can cut or raise dividends more than it's likely to change the gift system. That's his, uh, his theory. Interesting. Yeah. And also it occurs to me that he must have quite a sizable income from the cash dividends he must have, yeah. even though he pretends to you know live i mean he's 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 got several hundred million yens worth of shares i believe so his income just from the dividends must be fairly must be comfortable yeah i would and then he's not spending he's probably spending all that money on buying more shares isn't he <laughs> if he loves it so much yeah that's his <laughs> if he's living off the gifts and and then he's spending all the he's reinvesting all the dividends i guess yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, to get yeah. more like rice and beer and whatever. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, our deep dive today is talking about side hustles, and we we kind of thought about this because you know it's it's it seems very topical. Like lots of companies are changing their work rules to allow their employees to have side jobs. It seems. Uh, traditionally, this was a big no-no in Japan. So, you know, you work for the company and you're loyal and you don't do anything else. Um, but with the changing economy, um, that seems to be changing culturally. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's becoming more common for people with kind of good jobs to have side hustles, I guess. And, and real estate has always been an acceptable side hustle. Mm -hmm. So having commercial real estate on the side is fine it's one of the few things you can actually use to deduct uh, as a tax deduction oh, from yes. your income yeah um but this side job thing is new uh, uh and let's talk about it 
Yes. And we both have experience, I think, don't we, with the various things? We do. Yes. And before we talk about it, actually, we probably need to talk about visas. Right. Because in Japan, your visa, um, if you have a work visa, really does determine what kind of work you're allowed to do. Um, And it's very important to be aware of that and hopefully to follow it. Because if you're working illegally, um, the worst case scenario is you will be deported and you will not be allowed to return to Japan for 10 years or something like that. So you know, oh. if you have a house and family here, you don't want that to happen. No, no. So, so basically, if you're, oh, go on. spouse visa or permanent residence, I guess would be the only two. Or special yeah, visa. So the, yeah, there's those two. There's the long-term resident one, I think. There's a child right. of... Um, but basically all those kind of long-term ones where you're not restricted in terms of your employment that's ideal but if you have a work visa if you're a specialist in humanities or you're an instructor um, those are very very specific and very very limiting Uh, and none of them allow you to work for yourself oh really yeah so you need to be employed by someone so if you're you know, you want to start a business or something, then you need to be, you need an entrepreneur visa, I think it's called, uh, or a spouse or permanent resident or or et cetera, et cetera. So really important to be super aware of your your visa situation. Now, there's one thing you can do, which is you can get special permission to work outside of your visa. So if you're an instructor, for example, you're only allowed to work in public schools. But if you wanted to work for an Aikaiwa school, you could go to the immigration office and get permission to do that specific job that's not covered by your visa, and then you'd be okay. Um, And in the same way, you know, if you wanted to to do translation work on the side, or if you wanted to work at Starbucks, you would have to get specific permission to do that particular job. And this is what students do. So students um, are not allowed to work but it's very easy for them to get this special permission to do 20 hours a week or whatever. Uh, oh, and then they can work on a student visa. Okay. So basically speak to a lawyer or just go straight to the immigration <laughs> office if you... Um, yeah, I, I, I think you don't really need a lawyer. It's a very, very straightforward process. Oh, um, but yeah, check, get some information probably online and then yeah, go to the immigration office and, and do the paperwork mm-hmm. so that you're not working illegally and you're not risking you know, being deported and barred yeah. from Japan. Then mm-hmm. you'd be retiring someone else, somewhere else. <laughs> you'd have to look, yeah, uh, retire, retire France instead of retire Japan. <laughs> yeah. And then tax is the other one. So obviously, if you are making money, doing your side hustle, you should be paying tax on it, probably. So, yeah. Uh, there is an exemption. So if you're if you're working for a normal job and you're doing the end of year tax adjustment through your company, um, you're allowed to make up to two hundred thousand yen without declaring it. So you have this kind of miscellaneous side income exemption thing. Um, so that's one thing. But if you make more than that, you do have to declare it. Uh, and at that point, you'd be declaring it as miscellaneous income. Right. Um, and for miscellaneous income, you have your income and then you have your expenses and you can deduct the expenses from that income, not from your other income. Mm. 
and then you can it's it's actually really easy uh, i did it this year um for my retired japan stuff so i have mm-hmm. a i have a job working for my wife <laughs> right in her school and then all the retired japan stuff i, I kind of did my own books uh, and submitted it as miscellaneous income it's very very easy to do yeah the only thing is the miscellaneous in- income is taxed higher isn't it than yeah, like a salary income as far as i as far as i know I think it's the same. It's just added on. So. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the tax rates are not the same. It's basically added to your income to get your total income, and then your tax is based on that. But oh, oh, because the deductions are quite generous in Japan, um, yeah. you can generally deduct quite a lot from that miscellaneous income, so you're not adding all that much on to the... Oh, okay. So the the thing you might be thinking of is if you if you're doing part time work, um, they will withhold like ten percent automatically, and that might be more than the taxes you owe. But when you do your tax declaration, the, you get a refund for that. So. Right. No, I was thinking of um, with cryptocurrency, for example. Um, if you get money from, I think so, a cryptocurrency or consortium in Japan or wherever it is, is lobbying or has been trying to lobby the government to change the rules because if you make uh, income through shares either capital gains or dividends you pay a relatively low rate like say 20 percent, i think on dividends but if you make money with cryptocurrency you pay much more because it's classed as a miscellaneous, miscellaneous. income yes yes so all that means is that they're taxing crypto as normal income which because it goes in bands oh i see right whereas capital gains is always a flat 20 percent. so if you make oh, 10 billion yen from crypto the government's going to take 60-odd percent of it because it's income. Whereas if it were capital gains, it would just be 20% across, you know, no matter how much it was. Right, that's it. And I think people are trying to get the government to change that, but I don't hold well, it, I don't it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, really? to tax it as, as income. Uh, no, I mean, changing the band, though, from a flat rate to at least something that increases based on the... Oh, capital gains? Uh, or, or yeah, or the or dividend income. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I can't see that going down well. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because no. with the, the laws, yeah. I've probably got a lot of those themselves, and they're not going to change anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. I hope not. That would really screw up my uh, retirement planning. <laughs> <laughs> but the new NISA should take care of a lot of that, because obviously, with the new NISA, you're you're tax exempt completely. So. Yes. Yes. Go to retiredjapan.com slash for more information. <laughs> awesome. All right. So now that we've you know, now that we've covered visas and tax, make sure your visas and taxes are done properly. Um, yeah, let's talk about some side hustles. So I've I've had a second or third job the whole time I've been in Japan, at least from year three, I think. Year oh, really? three, oh. I started working part-time at an Aikaiwa, and since then I've always had you know, two or three or four or five little side things going on. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the first what, thing I did was... your experience of that being? Maybe four, about four, four or five years ago, I had um, an Etsy store, but I had to set it up in the UK because although you can set up an Etsy store from Japan, they are currently not, upset, not set up to accept credit cards for sellers in Japan. The, the way it's linked up is that um, to accept payments as a Japanese or a seller based in Japan, it has to be furikomi, basically. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, and, no, thank you. 
<laughs> yeah, and especially my my audience people. I had um, t I, as you can see, I have got ukulele. This is not one of my designs, but I made various ukulele design T-shirts and tote bags and stuff like that for my sort of ukulele audience. And most of them were outside of Japan. It was all in English, and they want to pay my credit card. So I was fortunate because I have still got bank account back in the UK, so I used that. But then it meant I had to um, declare that to the UK government. Although I didn't have to pay taxes in Japan and the UK, I did have to declare it in the UK and then in Japan as well. And it was just a lot of hassle and I wasn't making very much. So I just sort of cut it down after a couple of years. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, so that was my first. But since then, I've dabbled in a couple of other things which we can talk about. Yeah, let's talk about specific side hustles then. Because I think that's probably what people are going to be interested in. Um, oh, okay. Um, well, can I stick with um, the Etsy thing? Because hmm. this is kind of still ongoing in terms of, I, I see people talk about this on YouTube, especially with AI at the moment. There are lots of videos very recently about how you can make designs using AI. Make a design in five minutes, put it on a t-shirt, sell it on Etsy, Redbubble, whatever like that, and then boom, make loads of money. And of course, they're all saying, you know, the thousands of dollars a month, blah, blah, blah. I find that very hard to believe having tried it myself. So I haven't tried doing AI designs. I did actually like, do the designs myself, which I'm not a designer. They weren't great, but you know, it was something that I wanted to wear and some other people did as well. But even so, even if you can get those um, things up and I had it through print on demand, so I wasn't shipping things out myself, which was great. It was very hands off but you're still dealing with customers and people writing to you saying, oh, can you put a message in there, you know, to Sharon, you know, happy birthday or whatever. Like, no, I can't. The system's not set up for, set up for that. And then somebody else will be, oh, I really need this to get this by Christmas and then next Wednesday. Can you tell me if that's possible? Like, well, I don't know because they say there's I'm a I'm not shipping it. <laughs> yeah. I and then if I say yes, but it doesn't get there, what, what I do, I did have to give a couple of refunds a couple of times. And then the shipping as well was really high. On T-shirts, it wasn't so bad, but mugs especially, mugs would be like $7 to ship, um, which really makes the price sort of you want really to sell it for seven dollars, don't you? I mean, like... <laughs> yeah. So then you would, and also you have to think about different parts of the world. I wanted to have free shipping for everybody, but shipping rates change for each country. So some countries you wouldn't really make a profit on, and then trying to calculate your profit on top of not just the the platform fees, but then the sales taxes. So some states would have a sales tax. UK got twenty percent or something VAT, and so just working out what to charge to make a profit was really tough. And then in the end, I would get some one or two dollars profit per item, and then wow, I've really got to sell a lot of items to actually make anything. Ten thousand dollars a month, <laughs> right? Based on the time you need to put in, and it's not just designing something right at the beginning; it's a sort of follow up after that, and and you know, the time for logging it to be able to you know submit that to pay your taxes at the end of the year. So you've got to think about a lot of things other than just wow, I can make twenty dollars. And a lot of these YouTube videos, they're telling you the revenue. So yes, you can make a thousand dollars revenue, sure, but then the actual profit that you get after that is probably going to be what fifty dollars, something like that. Yeah. Um, okay. So. Yeah. Um, it's 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 good, very low cost up front. So I, the good thing is you can give it a try, um, and see how it goes, but do not have high expectations. I think from my experience. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and and 
I found something. So, so I, I write textbooks. So English teaching textbooks for Japanese junior high school students. And uh, we started off printing them ourselves. So we, we found a printer. We got the printer to print the books. They'd send the books to us. We'd sell them to people and then ship the books to people and invoice the people and try and keep track of all that. And it was just a nightmare. Absolute nightmare, especially as a, as a side business, because this wasn't, you know, our main, we're not a publisher. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we switched to Amazon. So Amazon's got print and demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very easy. You just go to uh, the Kindle Kindle kind of website interface thing. Um, and you can upload a PDF and set the price and click go. And then like a few days later, they check it. And then it goes live on Amazon. Uh, and Amazon prints it. They ship it. They invoice it. Um, they take 40%, I think. And then you pay the printing cost, and then you keep whatever's left. Do you do that through the Japanese Amazon website? And does that mean you can sell worldwide, or is it only Japan? Yeah, yeah. So you you can choose which stores they go through. Um, So, yeah, you can sell them through all the Amazon stores. So through the, going through the Japanese Amazon, you can sell a physical book in America, for example. Yeah, yeah. And you, sell, you can set all the prices separately. So you can say oh, the price really? in Japan is this, the price in the US is this, the price in India is this, and, and so on. Really granular kind of thing. Let's put a, note, um, a link to that in the comment in a second as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been really good. Um, obviously, we're not making as much money as we could if we went through a printer because if you do a big print run, you know, if you print 2,000 books or 5,000 books, then the, the price per copy goes quite low. Um, whereas Amazon, it's a flat. It's a flat. They take 40% and then you pay the printing cost. But that means that, you know, you can sell one book and it, it's not extortionate. So. Yeah. For 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 a side business where you're just doing low volumes or or you don't want to deal with all the um, invoicing and shipping and stuff, and it's worked really well for us. Uh, oh yeah, so I've got a link here for Kindle Direct Publishing, but it seems yeah. like it's not just Kindle. You can also do paperback versions of your books there. Exactly. Yeah, it's 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 the one they have the one site, I guess, for both. So you do physical books and the Kindle eBooks, and for Kindle eBooks, the the they only take twenty percent, I think, and of course there's no printing cost. So you make much higher margins on Kindle eBooks than you do on the physical really? books. Oh. I've always wanted to to write a book, and that looks. I didn't realize it would be that easy. It's so easy. It's so, and the books are fairly decent quality, uh, and they, you know, you can buy them, and they'll arrive the next day. So it's. It's amazing, but you know that the, they do take a big chunk compared to. What about the marketing? Do you have an audience, or you have marketing that you have to do, or does enough come through just Amazon searches? Oh no, no, no! It's it's entirely market itself. You know, it's people know me, or or you know, I'm in uh, lots of groups for school owners so we promote it there and people buy the course and a lot of people like it so they recommend it to people and yeah if you just put something on amazon you would sell zero i mean uh, okay so I've, I've got a couple of ebooks actually um i've got my miles and uh, points ebook and i 
think I've got one about teaching English in Japan. I mean, I don't remember. It was it was quite a long time ago. I made these uh, Kindle books, but they've made right. they've sold very very little. Even though right. I've got these platforms that mention them sometimes. So, oh right, it's very competitive. Unless you've got an audience, I yeah. don't imagine it would. You'd have to be quite lucky to 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 sell decent amounts. I think. Right. But it's it's yeah the the cost is zero and it's kind of fun to do so yeah it's it's a fairly mm. decent it, it's you're maybe just spending time basically yeah maybe it goes back to a little bit of what, what Shani was saying about schools it all depends on if the child or what you were saying as well if the child is suited to a boarding school or an international style of education or a Japanese style of education or whatever so yeah it depends on if you find writing fun that's for you but if you don't <laughs> obviously it's not for you. You're certainly not going to get rich doing this, right? You know, right. Without being very lucky uh, or very good. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So I, I, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I was looking at lots of people and reporting on how they'd done on on um, on YouTube. And one lady, she had made a bunch of um, coloring books, and again using AI to make little black and white diagrams of coloring. And she started making after. I think after eight months, she started making maybe three or 500 pounds a month. So what about five or six man, um, 50 or six, no? 50,000, 60,000 60, Japanese yen. But she had nearly 70 books on the platform. And so, yeah, it's only a handful of them that would actually sell. The rest would just be next to nothing. So you either get lucky or you make your own luck by churning out a whole load of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. This would be a low probability of making money, but low risk kind of option. I think. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, except you, you. It's quite time consuming until you figure out how it works and how you make the PDFs and how you get covers designed and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that kind of ties in with the next things. Um which is, uh, I wanted to mention, online courses. So it's kind of similar in that you're providing content uh, for people. And so I've done this just recently. Made a few um, video courses. I have four now. And I put them on Udemy and Skillshare. I started off on Skillshare because they have a very good sort of introductory hand-holding course for people who want to make a, a course. And that was great because it was motivation to actually get it finished because it turned out to be harder than I expected. I didn't really do very well with my first course, but I kind of enjoyed it. And yeah. so then I made a second one and that was much easier to make and it's done much better. That's about um, uh, ChatGPT and programming because that's my background. And then I made another one. I've just um, done my fourth one, which is about uh, social media. So how to use Airtable to automatically post to, to social media. But the programming one with ChatGPT is still doing the best and... Oh, another one about web development. I thought that would be the best because my whole career is in web development. I know what I'm talking about, but no, it's kind of crickets with that one. So again, you don't know what's going to work. And... I think being timely helps, you know, oh, right. seizing the the zeitgeist and, you know, like everyone's talking about AI. So if you do a course on AI, it's like, yeah. Well, there's a lot of competition though. I thought it would get lost in the noise, but no, there's enough people searching for it that it's okay. Having said that, on those two platforms, Skillshare and Udemy, Last month, I made around $50 on both of them. And for the effort I put in, which is about a week for me to make a video course, um, it's really not worth it. Having said that, 
they're now just hopefully going to keep selling for, you know, I don't know, months and hopefully years without me having to do anything. So maybe in the long term, it would be worth it. But again, it's not going to make me rich, but it's a nice little side hustle. And now I have four. I can see which one has worked. So now I can sort of build that. I'm planning to do another one, again, chat GPT based, which will hopefully be successful. So I'm starting to get some data in, which should make me a little bit more successful. You can double down on the on the good ones, basically. Right, <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I found something similar with the guides. So the Retired Japan Guides, we self-published mm. through Gumroad as eBooks. Oh, um, yeah. And yeah, like you said, like we, it took a lot of time to write, but once you do it, then you can slowly sell them for years. You know, every every month I sell a couple of copies of the guides. So, so again, it it wasn't a wild success, but it's fairly it's been fairly solid. You know, you put in a lot of work at the beginning, and then hopefully it, you get this long tail of of you know constant income coming in. Yeah, is it? Well, there's probably many books, but I think Rich Dad Poor Dad is one in particular where he advocates for. If you want to be rich, have some have assets, basically assets that make you money, um, and yeah, I suppose it's all about building that up, isn't it? Yeah, and and the nice thing about digital assets is that they're basically very low cost or even free to create, uh, and mm. so you're just putting in your time and and hopefully becoming more intelligent about how to allocate that time. But yeah, you're building up this portfolio of digital assets. Yeah. Yes. Um, so other side hustles, which are not necessarily actually creating something is, um, oh, so another one I have here is website affiliate links, website ads. So if you have a website or a blog or something, or I suppose YouTube channel, maybe you can fit into this, then obviously you can put ads or affiliate links into that and generate income through that. And yep. I do have this, uh, one of my hobbies is, um, watches i collect vintage watches i have a vintage watch site and i put ebay affiliate links on that and my traffic is just over twenty thousand visitors a month and i get about 120 dollars or so per month wow from, uh, ebay which is That's not bad it's not bad because i don't really need to do anything other than make sure the website is still you know online and stuff um but building up that amount of traffic was quite a lot of um work i put in a lot of hours into it and i've had other sites as well where i've put in the same amount of time and they just have not done been anywhere near as successful so i've been lucky with this particular topic there hasn't been much sort of competition in that area um but if yeah, so, i'm not going to retire on that anytime soon <laughs> yeah 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 so i mean we we have amazon affiliate links on the especially mm. on the monday read um a little bit on the main site and that yeah makes basically there's there's this you need to make i think five thousand yen before they pay out right with amazon affiliate and we get that every couple of months so it makes maybe two two and a half thousand yen a month yeah quite quite regularly it's quite consistent um so obviously it's not gonna you know <laughs> contribute all that much it pays some of our hosting fees which is nice but yeah, yeah. Um, and the other one is Wise. So I'm a huge fan of Wise. Um, yep, and we we do have an affiliate uh, link with them. And that's brought in nothing, basically. I think most right. people that have Wise um, already, so they're, they're not going to sign up for it through our link. Uh, and yeah, 
I love the product, but it's it's not really been a financial uh, thing for us. Yeah. Should mention as well with these, you do have to pay to have the website or the hosting um, compared to you know publishing on Amazon where it's all on their platform. So you don't have monthly costs, do you? Yeah. 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 So you're paying hosting fees and and you know, we have we we have the email list that we have to pay for, AWeber. Oh, yeah. So that's exactly. like thirty dollars a month, I think. So mm-hmm. you do have these kind of fixed costs for for having an online presence. Yeah, yeah. Um YouTube income, we can't talk about that just yet. No, because we we're not monetized. <laughs> Please watch all the retired Japan videos and then we might get monetized at some point <laughs> basically yeah. youtube there's there's a minimum thing for them to start giving you money uh which didn't used to be the case so i used to be monetized on youtube because you could just be monetized oh. immediately um and what that means is that when they show ads on your channel you get a cut of the ads that they show youtube keeps most of it they give the channel owner some of it um mm-hmm. but now you need to reach uh, a certain threshold before they start paying you. So until you reach that threshold, they keep all the ad money. Um, and at the moment, you need 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 watch hours in the last year. And that's a rolling count. So, mm. you know, as, 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 you, as the days go on, you lose the older watch hours so that's actually quite challenging for a lot of people because yes. it's not cumulative you can't just build up to it through effort you need within that calendar year you need four thousand hours which is just over 12 hours a day isn't it i think i suppose so yeah yes it is actually yeah yeah because i am about six or seven on my channel and yeah about half yeah so you, you you're never gonna get there if, if you don't have that 12 hours a day average kind of thing so it's really quite challenging i think yeah yeah um i Once hope you... retired japan will get there within the next three or four months but yeah i'm not sure yeah. and then we can do a video about it yeah. ah yes <laughs> no, we certainly should. Yeah. i got managed i got monetized on youtube and all i got was this 87 cents or whatever it was <laughs> I'm kind of optimistic for that because, again, looking at other people's YouTube videos who have talked about this, it's very easy to find. You know, I got monetized. Here's my first month paycheck. Um, it really does depend on the topic from what I've seen. And you've got, you know, personal finance, which is one of the higher paying um, sort of ad revenue topics. And my guess is, I suppose at the moment, all we can do is guess. But my sort of estimate based on what I've seen is between 5 to $10 per 1,000 views. I think. Okay. And we get and then, just over 4,000 views at the moment. I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because by the, it'll probably be more than a bit more than that by the time we eventually get monetized. Um, I saw somebody who has a clothes making channel and she was getting, I think one to $2 per thousand views. Oh. So it does depend on your niche very much. Yeah. But it's quite easy to find other people being open about how much they get to get a sort of rough yardstick. But yeah, yeah, and hopefully at some point we'll be able to add to that data. So. Hopefully, hopefully. Cool. Yeah, so YouTube's tough. YouTube is is a grind, I think. Um, you know, and even the people that get lucky, they're actually working really, really hard, most of them. I don't know anyone who got lucky with no yeah. effort, so. Right, yes, yes. Yeah, YouTube is, it's fun and, you know, you, you just, 
you just need to buy the equipment, which could be your smartphone and you know your your laptop, your existing laptop, and you can use DaVinci, which is a free program for editing, mm-hmm. which is very good. Um, but yeah, huge time suck. So you've got this huge investment of time that may or may not pay off. I think yeah. is that is that would would you say that's your experience with your watch channel as well? Yes, uh, I've really just so far just made videos to sort of supplement the website without thinking about monetization of YouTube and even sort of thinking about monetization, oh, I should make more. I found one time I sort of made several in a row and then my watch hours sort of went up and then I sort of had a break. And then a couple of months later, I went back and made like three or four in a row again and it sort of went up but came back down again. Oh, why? Why not people like this? So I kind of, yeah, I stick to focusing on the website because I know about that more than I do about YouTube. Or rather, that's where I want to put my time compared to YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I think you've you, basically you've got more control. If it's your website, you have control of it. Mm. Whereas if it's on YouTube or Facebook or, or Twitter, they can change the rules anytime, uh, and you're not re- you don't own anything. Basically, you're just kind of renting at that point. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that's pushing me is actually I looked at I was logged out on a different computer or something. Looked at my own channel, and there are adverts on my videos. Like what? I, I didn't realize. I thought it would, there wouldn't be adverts on there until you're monetized. But no, they're making money off it already. So, okay, I should be getting some of that. <laughs> yeah, that's your money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it should be. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, another thing, if you have a YouTube channel, is you could try and get money through Patreon. Um, I've not heard many positive things about this, unless you've got a big audience. I think it's quite tough, isn't it? The the tricky thing for me because I have thought about this, um, right. uh, and we do have something. We have um, a kind of sponsor thing through Gumroad where people pay two dollars a month for nothing. They just do it to support Retire Japan, which is really right. great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, but the tricky thing for me is what to provide because Patreon is basically you're providing something. Oh. to the people that support you. So they they sponsor you and you give them something. So for me, it was always like, what would I give people, you know, through this kind of monthly fee thing? So mm. um, I think it's similar to Gumroad in that Patreon keeps 10% or something and you get the rest. Um, mm. I, I support a few people on Patreon at the moment, mostly cartoonists. Oh, online cartoonists um and what they provide you is they either give you extra cartoons or they let you see them earlier right yeah so you get them before they're released um and the main reason i'm doing it is because i like them uh and obviously you know being an online cartoonist is not the most stable job so unless they have a decent patreon page they're not going to be able to afford to continue making the cartoons i think yeah yeah but yeah, I don't know anyone making big numbers from Patreon. It's mainly no. like behind the scenes or, you know, join me, you know, as I look at something that isn't public. Yeah. Um, we've covered quite a few, all sort of in the digital <laughs> realm, haven't we? Yeah. But there's opportunities sort of, you know, more sort of physical goods or offline. And you've got more experience than me, I think, with these. Uh We'll talk about that other one in a second. But the part-time English is the obvious one for anyone watching. You're in Japan. And I suppose this could be online or offline, couldn't it? But yeah, if you are yeah. a native English speaker or a very good English speaker, then there is 
still a lot of demand, I think, for English teachers here. Yeah, there is. But at the same time, um, I get the feeling wages have come down right. while I've yeah, been here. Right. So uh, it used mm -hmm. to be normal to get three or 4,000 yen an hour to, to teach part-time. And now it seems to be much lower. So yeah. I see ads for like 1,500 yen an hour, 2,000 yen an hour. Uh, and that's barely above minimum wage. Yeah. You know, and, and that's not a huge amount of money. So, I mean, yeah, less attractive now for sure. Um, and you need to be careful with the visa thing again. So if you're an instructor, this is really common. You're an ALT. You have an instructor mm -hmm. visa. If you want to be doing this kind of a Kiowa or, you know, online kind of teaching, you need to have permission to do that because normally you'd need to have a specialist in humanities visa for that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, even though they're both like kind of teaching... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's where you're teaching. So instructor oh. visa, you can only teach in public schools or in community centers, government places. Oh. Um, specialist in humanity, you can only work for private enterprise. Mm. And then there's a lecturer visa, which is only working in university. So it's really specific. Right, I see. Ooh. Yeah, okay. if, if you think, oh, I have an English teacher visa, I can teach English, that is very much not the case. Yeah, yeah. Had no idea that was a thing, says Michael in the uh, comments. Yeah, <laughs> me neither. <laughs> yeah, but so it, it does depend whether you've got a spouse uh, visa, permanent visa, or or not. Yeah, if you have one of those U visas, there's no worries in doing anything. Um, right. Which ties into the next thing, actually. <laughs> yeah. So what if I don't want to teach English? I don't want to do anything online. I wanted to make money offline. <laughs> what else could I do as a foreigner living in Japan? Well, other than normal stuff like work in restaurants or, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. drive a taxi. And, and you, know, you, you can do this if you have the right visa and you have the la mm -hmm. Japanese language ability. Um, but one other big one for male foreigners, especially foreign-looking foreigners like white right. or black uh, and so on, uh, is being a wedding celebrant. A wedding celebrant. Celebrant. Yeah. We don't celebrant. call ourselves wedding priests. Uh, we are celebrants because it's basically a performance. Um, you, in the you say, we, it sounds like you have some experience with this. I did this for about eight years. So I estimate I've done about 800 weddings in Japan. Really? Uh, yeah, mostly in Sendai. So the, the wow. chances of me running into one of my couples is quite high. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I've got a blog post um, talking about this that we'll link to in the description. Um, but yeah it at the time it was a great job because the average pay per wedding was about fifteen thousand yen uh one wedding takes hours? 20 minutes oh wow yeah yeah so you know if you got a good job in a a venue so the the venues are structured so they have one chapel and like multiple dining rooms so it's, it's, you can do weddings uh, at half-hour intervals, basically. So you bring everyone into the chapel, do the 20-minute wedding, move everyone into the dining room, bring the next group into the chapel. So you could do eight weddings a day. You know, which is 120,000 yen, which is not bad as a part-time job if you're doing this you know, in season. So obviously the wedding seasons are in spring and autumn. Right. Uh, and then you have the like lucky not days, so the... The Taiyan days, which are auspicious. Uh, and on those days, they're generally booked out. So you could do eight, nine, ten weddings in one day. Boom. 
uh, and make really quite a lot of money. I was making more from weddings than my day job on on big months. So, wow. Unfortunately, um, yeah. <laughs> again, wages seem to have come down because of there's a lot more people in Japan now. I think so. I, I'm hearing it's more like seven or eight thousand yen uh, a job now. Yeah. Um, and personally, I was I was so grateful to have this job because it helped me support my family. So I had you know I had quite a big family <laughs> quite early. I had stepkids. Um, so I'm not sure how we'd have made ends meet without the weddings, but at the same time, I was really happy to give them up because they were very much, uh, work for money for me. So I wasn't really, you know, after, after you do a few, you know, once you get to a couple of hundred, then you're not really learning anything anymore. Right. Uh, and they're very stressful. So yeah. So because it's public and because it's being filmed, it's really high stakes. So you, you know, you're performing and it has to be perfect because it's, you only get one shot at it, right? It's their special day. You've got to get it right. Any kind of mistake, particularly if you're, if you get a name wrong, it's just, whoo. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, did you mess up? Tell us some. A couple. Yeah. Them, I mean, the, the, the worst one I did was I had a wedding um, in Matsushima which is about oh. 45 minutes away. Yeah. And I messed up the time. So oh. an hour before the wedding, I got the confirmation phone call. Where are you? Are you about to arrive? And I was like, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, oh, no. so I jumped in the car and like sprinted there, you know, driving far too fast and stuff. Got there, got there late, had to walk past the wedding party late. Oh dear! Didn't have time to do the rehearsal. Um, didn't, and the the problem is each venue has a different wedding script thing, so you have to memorize oh. that particular one. Screwed yeah. that up as well, so the company lost that hotel contract. So it was like, it was, oh, was incredibly dear. messy. Yeah. Um. That sounds pretty bad. Yeah, so we have a couple of comments about this in the YouTube uh, chat. Uh, Michael has, has done this as well. He's done about 50, which I think is impressive. Um, he says that pay really depended uh, on the job, and it seems like the location as well. So yeah. he says he would get 50,000 yen for ones down in Soma. Now, maybe this is a, a while ago. I'm not sure. Sendai seemed to be the cheapest. Hard luck, Ben. <laughs> 9,000 to 12,000 yen. And then... Hanamaki, Morioka were more around 15,000. Um, so, yeah, quite a difference then. And, and yeah, yeah I mean, the rural ones, basically, you, you can only do one. You know, you're going to a venue, you're doing one uh -huh. thing, and it's taking all day to get there on the train. So that's yeah. why the fees have to be a bit higher. Um, oh, okay, right. Um, yeah, Cassie says she's surprised that people, I suppose it depends on sort of the, the culture you or the religion you come from, but that couples are happy with having some random, this is because uh, he's saying this, some random white guy officiating one of the most important days of their lives. Yep. Um, yeah, well, it's... Surprised me at the beginning, the, but... Yeah. yeah, there's a few things here. I mean, one is the wedding ceremony doesn't have any legal um, significance at all. So everyone gets married officially, legally, at the ward office, and then they have a, a party and... and Lots of people opt for the Western style 
party, mainly because of the, I think it's because it's, you know, it's in the films, you know, it's in movies, you get to dress up in nice clothes and the, the celebrant is a very small part of that, I think. Although I did have to get ordained. So I am ordained oh. through a church oh. in the US. I can do weddings in 40 states in the US if I wanted to, because I have my thing. So it's, it's iffy, you know? <laughs> Yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, I, and also, like, if you're religious, if you're a religious person in Japan, um, you would get married at your church. You wouldn't yeah, be going to some okay. random hotel. So, not one right. person was a practicing Christian that I've married. Yeah. Um, actually, the worst thing I ever actually, I had two. I had two really bad weddings in terms of that. Yeah. Um, one was uh, I was working at an elementary school. And I moved to a different elementary school. So I transferred mm -hmm. schools. Uh, and I had a wedding a few weeks later. And one of the people getting married was from the first school. And one was from the second school. And all the teachers from both schools came. So that was just like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> they didn't know you had this side hustle. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, that's and a good point. Second well, one, side hustles. Like you know, what? How would you feel if your colleagues found out? <laughs> would you be cool? Or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the second one was um, one of my friends showed up, and I didn't know that I was going to be doing her wedding, and she didn't know oh. that I was going to be doing her. And I was like, <laughs> oh no! And she was really nice about it. She was like, yeah, I'm glad that you know, okay, you did it and stuff. So it was like, oh. but still, yeah. I was like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i'm quite glad that i don't need to do that anymore but i'm very glad that i had that option when i did need it mm, it sounds like a great experience yeah i've got i should probably write a book about it you know i've got lots of like <laughs> happenings from the weddings yeah. so. but this is still so you've stopped doing it now but this is still a thing i think isn't it it's still like a oh very option. much so although yeah. demographics again you know the number of weddings is really going down um oh and although i've heard that now they there's a market for funerals although much smaller because obviously funerals are less kind of movies and aspirationals and stuff but there mm. are kind of funeral celebrants as well although most of the time you're going to go through your local um terra aren't you i guess yeah yeah oh. and earlier on you said it's a bit iffy but you mean iffy in the possibly religious sense it's not if it legally is it it's all legally absolutely fine well here we have the visa thing so oh. you need to be a permanent resident or a spouse or you need to be on a missionary visa which is allows you to do religious activities that's a um, thing I don't know. and i'm not sure it's going to be very easy to get permission from immigration to do this as a side job but i don't know again so that's true yeah wow there you go. You won't hear about that in other YouTube videos about side hustles. <laughs> Maybe I should make a YouTube video about this. That is, yes. ah, I think you should. Yes. Well, Cassie says that would be a fun book. I think at the very least, a, a YouTube video about it would be very good. Yeah. Yes. Let's, yeah. All right. So don't be surprised in the next couple of weeks when. Uh... <laughs> my, Michael has said that he was asked to speak Japanese not so well, apparently. They, I guess, yeah. they more authentic, like <laughs> foreigner. <laughs> Yeah, they want the they want the katagoto experience. I never, 
I never did that. I, I refused to do that. I'm sorry. Right, right. There, right. there is a limit. So I, I did my best for people to make it a special day and and put right. effort into yes. it. But I'm not going to do the you know dancing monkey thing. Like, no. Right. right. <laughs> wow. What an experience. And and actually, one extra thing that re- I really got out of it was it's a great way to learn formal Japanese. Ah. Because the script is quite f- in quite a formal register and you have to memorize it so i learned so much grammar from from doing weddings as well you've got to memorize the whole thing i see well i mean you you can hold it but you you know it wants to be you know like this the whole thing so yeah i memorized it and i had the script printed out as backup basically Mm -hmm. yeah wow very interesting topic that is. That's all new to me. Um, we'll go back to the other side hustles. Then we've got a couple of a couple to finish off with, and um, I suppose these are kind of relevant for any country. But in Japan, you can do Airbnb, although they have sort of tried to make that a bit tougher. It's quite licensed here, but it is possible. So you you've got the option to do you know a room in your home. That, that's one thing on so Airbnb, and, and I think they're going back to that. Like Airbnb uh, oh. have a new kind of product with hosts oh. in their home, and they're already pushing that at the moment. Um, and the other one, of course, is just doing it in a in a separate building, um, which is yeah. more commercial, I think. But yes. Japan is quite restrictive, so I think you can only do six months a year, I believe. If you're not like the f- officially registered as a full time Airbnb. Like you, you jump to all the hoops and get ex, a special license, I think. Yeah, if you okay. haven't got that, then you can only do 180 or something-ish days per year. Okay. There's a few people on the forum that do it, I think, in Ret- oh, Retire okay. Japan. So it's definitely, if you're interested, jump on there and ask a question and we'll probably have some, uh, have some advice yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I need to buy an Akia and start an Airbnb experience, says Michael in the chat. Well, yeah, so we talked about both the Akia and Airbnb in a recent um, one of these podcasts where we uh, covered property. And so, yes, that, but um, yeah, even Akia, which uh, you know, they're often free or low cost, but because they're in a bad location or something, so even just getting the Akia might not be uh, very cheap. Yeah, it's, it's um, going to be, you know, other tourists coming to wherever it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we've got a friend down in Kochi Prefecture in Shikoku, and they rent a room out, um, Airbnb, and they really enjoy it. They enjoy the social aspect of it. I think you have to enjoy that as well. Um, you know, meeting different people, traveling and coming to visit them. And so, yeah, it's the money they gain from that. But in addition, it's the, the yeah, there's a non-monetary building those relationships and hearing stories and things. My friend did it in London, like he rented out a room in his flat, um, oh, but he stopped doing that after a year or so. He had lots of bad experiences with oh, guests, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not necessarily going to be you know good or bad. It's it's going to vary, I think. Yeah. Um, the final one I have on the list is buying and selling on Merukari or Yahoo Auction. Again, if you're outside Japan, it'd be the same as selling stuff on eBay or whatever. And I've done this a little bit, but not really as a sort of a side hustle to make, you know, to make loads of money. It's just, you know, things that I don't need anymore, I will sell. Um, 
So I talked about watches earlier. I do like buying watches and then I'll wear it. And then I'll, after a few weeks or months, I'll move it on and go and buy another, another one. And uh, yeah, sometimes I make a bit of money, although it's very, very easy to forget about the, the two, two main costs, which are the shipping. And you either cover the shipping costs yourself, which I do. And I say, I've got free shipping, which means I think maybe I get slightly higher bids because of that. Um, and then there's the fee which Medocari or Yahoo Auction will take, which is about 10%. Yeah. Um, and then if you want your money from Yahoo Auction in particular, if you want that through PayPay, it's free. But if you want it through a bank transfer, you then have to pay, I think, 200 yen or something. Right. Um, so, yeah, take that all into account. And then, like, oh, wow, I sold it for 20,000 yen. Well, you didn't. You sold it for 1,800. Sorry. 18,000, no, what am I whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, 18,000. And then you had to pay the shipping costs out of that as well, didn't you? So Yes, yeah, which you have to kind of think about in advance to set your base price. So sometimes I'll start it at one yen, but then I've got to like cross my fingers and hope that it goes above 700 yen or whatever to cover my, my Yamato shipping costs. All right. Um, yeah. But it's pretty good. Um I would say my advice for that, based on my own experience, is take a lot of photos, really, really clear photos, if you can. And then what has worked for me is having a description and then a sort of list of the specifications. So with a watch, going back to a watch, um, people want to know stuff like this, the material. Is it a leather strap or a metal strap? And all this is in the photos, but any text you're going to put in is going to be picked up by people's doing searches. So I think it's worth putting it in there. And then I will put that as a written description and then list it out in bullet points as well, because I know some people won't read the description. They'll just skip to the bullet points. Um, so, yeah, putting like much more information than you actually need. On the flip side, if you want to buy stuff to then you know flip and sell at a profit, I think it's really good to look for stuff that is non-specific. So in, I, I like Seiko watches. Instead of searching for Seiko and a particular model number, I'll just search for Seiko old Seiko Vintage or Seiko Diver and I'll try and hopefully find somebody who doesn't know much about watches and they've just taken one photo with their phone and they put it on and said old Seiko watch. I don't know what it is and that means people searching for the particular model will not I'm find it find in it. search results. Mm. Right. And that's worked for me a few times. <clears throat> um, yeah. So How much work is involved though? Because I have this image that it's a real hassle doing this, right? So you're you're taking photos and writing descriptions and putting things in boxes and going to the post office and um, it's not, the case? not too bad. Uh, oh, it's much better recently with the posting actually because convenience stores uh, have automated a lot of that. So let's say I've got oh a good example here is actually with um da, 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 da. oh going back to the Kabunushi Yutai a gel. Actually, I don't know if I'm supposed to. I don't know. That might be against their terms of service. So I wouldn't so know about something, that. Something, a product. I'll stick, I'll stick with watches. <laughs> so I have a watch. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it's not too bad. I will take photos. I used to do it with a proper camera and tripod, but recently it's a bit of a hassle. So it, you don't. there's no rules on it. If you just want to take one photo with your phone, you can if you want to, but you're going to get a lower price. So it's a little bit flexible like that. Um, so I would take all the photos against a piece of white paper. Make sure I do it in daylight rather than nighttime because the natural light just makes everything look, look better, I think. Um, then I would have to um, measure the, the dimensions and stuff. Um, and 
the first time I'm thinking about how to phrase this and all that kind of stuff. But once you've done it once, I then save that as a file and then I can copy and paste it and just fill in the details for the next model. So it right. takes quite a bit of time the first time, but after that, you, um, yeah, you re reuse your past description as a template and that works well for me. The uh, actual shipping is now much better and I will, um, you have to specify how you're going to ship it when you actually list it. And so oh, I go, okay. um, but you can, you can put you know, multiple. So I'll say, I'll either send it with um, the post office. I can't remember what the name of the, something you pack it or something like that, or the convenience store equivalent. And then when somebody buys it, I'll put it in a cardboard box, which is usually a reused Amazon box that I've got lying around. Make sure you wrap it really nicely. I, I tend to put in a little note just saying thank you in Japanese. I'm just hoping that they won't give me a bad review, basically. So everything you can to avoid getting a bad review. And then you used to have to go to the post office and wait in the queue, and that was a hassle. But this now you can go to the convenience store, you go to the machine, you, Yahoo Auction will give you this barcode. So with oh, that on your nice. You then scan it on the loppy machine or whatever the equivalent is at the convenience store. It'll then give you this ticket. And it used to be that you had to take that to the counter and then they would you know, enter it in the system. But now with things that are less than three centimeters thick, you don't even need to go to the counter. They've got this sort of post box thing inside the convenience store. It prints out this label, you stick it in and you put it in the box and Oh, nice! You're back home in five minutes, and it's really, really good. And and when they do that, it automatically sends a message back to Yahoo Auction saying they'd posted it, and so the the, the buyer gets notified auto automatically. Nice. It, it really has been streamlined very nicely. I think Medicaddy is the same, but nobody's bought any of my stuff on Medicaddy. I think I have it priced too high. So I've, I've personally... my daughter does Medicaddy sometimes, not as a business, oh, right. just to get rid of stuff. But yeah. yeah. I don't... yeah. I don't know the deal. Basically, when I've got stuff, I just give it to her and then she oh. sells it and she can keep the money. I don't care. I just want to get rid of the thing at that point. Right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, the posting part, it really is, is so much easier now. It's very nice. I mean, it is all in Japanese, so you have to you know, be comfortable reading Japanese. But, yeah, I sell something. That, uh, you have to wait for them to pay before Yahoo Auction will actually give you the, that sort of uh, barcode, that QR code. But once they do oh, that, okay, right, yeah, take your package, take your QR code, go to the convenience store, and boom, you're done. Nice, really, really, yeah, it's good. Um, I think it's like um, some of the other things we talked about. You don't need money up front, so give it's worth giving it a try once or twice and seeing if it's for you or not. But you're probably not going to be rich from it <laughs> once they've taken out all the fees and stuff. Right, yeah, you can't really scale it very easily, can you? Mm. It's not like you could do hundreds a week suddenly, you know. Like... No, no. <clears throat> think... Okay, so I think that's a, that's a fairly broad uh, range of <laughs> side hustles. Um, if anyone's got any different ones, please stick them in the comments. That would be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So this yeah. is probably going to be one of our longest oh, yeah, <laughs> JTVs wow. ever. Let's just wow. go through the forum shorts super quick. So these are basically interesting threads on the forum that have been active recently. Um, and the first one was um, talking about bond allocations. So within your portfolio, you might want to have some stocks for growth and some bonds for stability. And, you know, 
do we need bonds now? Is it a good idea to buy bonds now? Bonds seem to be a terrible investment. And there's a really nice discussion about that on the forum. So check it out if you're interested. Uh, next one was selling an inherited house. And this was really shocking to almost everyone. Because you might assume that if you inherit a house uh, and pay inheritance tax, uh, you could then sell the house and not pay tax. However, that is not the case. So you inherit the house, um, you pay inheritance tax or not, based on how much it's valued at by the government. Right. But when you sell the house, um, you will have to calculate your capital gain. And the capital gain is based on purchase price by paid anything. your grandfather or whoever bought the house. Oh, when they bought it. Oh, I see. Oh. And of course, you know, there's depreciation and, and blah, 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 and you have to work it. But you do have to do this. And then you may or may not have to pay capital gains tax on that as well. And this was shocking for most people because a lot of countries handle this. Um, when you inherit the house, you reset the price and that's your kind of purchase price so mm. especially for houses overseas you know where it might have been bought for you know twenty five thousand pounds in 1970 and now it's worth eight hundred thousand pounds right it's going to be a painful conversation so this yeah. was a really interesting thread and, and definitely worth checking out if you're in that situation you've got to hope they bought it during the bubble <laughs> bubble era at a really high price right <laughs> Well, you better hope that you've got a lot of cash to pay these uh, capital gains taxes. Wow. Uh, and then the next one was about children's taxable accounts. So obviously, Junior NISA is ending this year. Mm. Um, yeah. So at the moment, Junior NISA is a great way to invest for children. But from next year, we're not going to have Junior NISA. So we're just mm. going to have taxable accounts. So is it worth using a taxable account? When would it be a good idea to use a taxable account? <clears throat> Things like that. If you've got kids and you want to put some money away for them, check out that thread as well. Yeah, that's good. Uh, we had one about car navigation systems particularly for older cars. So, you know, when you buy the car, the navigation system data is up to date, hopefully. But a few yep. years later, that information is going to be out of date. And often you have to pay quite a lot of money to get the latest data. Um, we did ours a couple of years ago because it was about 10 years old and basically <laughs> all the roads had changed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we paid something like twenty or thirty thousand yen to Toyota to update the data. Yeah. So it can be very, very pricey to do that. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got alternatives like using your smartphone or sticking an old iPad in there and using that. So that's, that's an what we do. Thread. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, then we had a thread about moving abroad. Uh, if you're planning to come back to Japan. So you leave Japan for a few years, work abroad, and then come back. So what's your tax obligation? How does residence work? Mm. Lots of good information in there. Mm -hmm. We had a thread. Well, it's an old thread, but it's about inter interactive brokers uh, and how everyone in Japan is going to have to move to their new Japan system, oh, yes. even if they were in the US system. And basically, it's been delayed, and lots of people haven't been moved yet, and we don't really know what's going on. So, right. That. But if if you've got an account and you're not sure what's going on, that might be a good thread to check out. Yeah. Um, we had a thread about 
opening uh, the new NISA account with a different broker. So say you wanted to diversify, um, you know, all your, all your investments are with one broker, but the new NISA system is starting next year. It oh. might be a good move to open your new NISA with a separate broker, make all the new investments over there, and then you've got two brokers and you've got a little bit of diversification and safety, you know, if your account gets hacked or if the broker has an issue or something. So very paranoid okay. people might want to check that out. Yeah, I'm on the um, keep it simple. I'm happy with just one personally, but it depends on your your appetite yeah i'm actually planning to switch so i've oh, got really? all my current investments with rakuten um mm. but in the i'm you know we're gonna put uh how much is it 18 million yeah we're gonna put 18 million yen into the new nisa so i'm gonna put that in monix uh just so oh. i've got that diversification a little bit yeah yeah mm. We had a thread about planning for child expenses, which tied in very nicely to mm. today's discussion about international schools. Um, and actually, then we got really, um, yeah, that, that um, forced me to get a different job. Actually, we knew we wanted to send our child to an international school, and so I suppose at least a year or before he was due to start, it was like, let's be realistic about this. We can't afford it on my current salary, and so uh, forced me to find a new job with a higher salary. That, oh wow! Um, to be able to afford it. As a good, was able to get one in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a forcing function, really, which was a good thing in the end. But yeah, mm. and then the final one again. This is quite an old thread, but it's basically what jobs people do who are oh. you know forum members. So you know we've got the usual okay. kind of English teachers and IT guys and you know people working in Tokyo, but there's a whole bunch of other jobs as well. You know we've got like. Uh, medical researchers and like uh, advertising people and people that do inbound tourism uh, and all sorts on there. So it's really interesting to read. Uh, oh, that so sounds good. I would check that That's one out too. A lot of topics, isn't it, for this time? Yeah, yeah, we've had a few. I mean, you know, we, we do have hundreds of topics on the forum. So anything that you're interested in about retired, you know, <laughs> Japan and personal finance, our forum is a good place to go. And you don't need an account to read it. So you can go in and search for stuff and, and check stuff out. And you only need to register if you want to post in the forum. Right. What would the URL be if people wanted to see the Retired Japan forums? Well, they'd go to retiredjapan.com and then they would click on the, you know, forum button. So... <laughs> Sounds very easy. <laughs> cool. And I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Two hours, 41 minutes. That's pretty impressive. Um, yes. And it flew by. So these these things are so fun to do, for me at least. <laughs> yeah. Wow, we've had some good comments as well. I really appreciate all the people leaving comments on Facebook and YouTube and LinkedIn. It's amazing, isn't it? We're actually getting comments from all these different places. It's very, very smooth. Really impressed. Yeah, with the people's experience. and Yeah, excellent. Good. Whew. Whew. Indeed. So I'm really <laughs> hungry. It's time for lunch. <laughs> oh, right, yes, because you're not in Japan at the moment. So retire outside Japan until next yeah week. yeah well retire in japan and then you have time to you know go and see your family in europe so oh that's true yeah nice good thank you everybody for sticking with us for this long hope you enjoyed it 
Yeah, and see you next month on June 26th when, fingers crossed, we'll be talking to an accountant and CPA who is familiar with both U.S. and Japanese tax systems. Uh, We'll be taking some questions. I'm not sure how, you know, to what kind of depth we can go on that one. But, yeah, Mm. come and join us uh, uh, next month for Retire Japan TV. Right. Thank you very much, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.